This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hey, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, somewhere in the world. Welcome to episode 51 of In Class with Dr. Gray Carr, In Class with Carr. Hi. Hey, Prof, how are you? Um, you know what? Um, first, let me say thank you. Thank you, everyone, uh, all over the world, wherever you are joining us. You have made this uh, into a thing that I don't think can be stopped or uh, let me appropriately frame it, should not be stopped. Uh, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. I'm also grateful for you. I know we're going to talk today about Stevie Wonder moving to Ghana. We're going to talk about Coca-Cola uh, erasing whiteness. Mm. But I want to start off talking about uh, the black church because... Um, the PBS documentary, two-part series, uh, of course, presented by Skip Gates, funded by the Ford Foundation, produced by John Legend, a whole bunch of names mm. involved in it, is the kind of documentary that I would be rubbing my hands to go watch. I couldn't wait to see it. And because of you, um, I, I'm now looking through a different lens. I'm going to blame you for me not enjoying it at the level that I think I should because I'm like scrutinizing Don't and I'm asking you the question. So before I ask you the question about it, I, I want to thank uh, the Black Church and PBS because it sent me down several rabbit holes in the first part. Um, you know, I'm like Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Huh. So oh, I was, damn. I was, yeah. And um, I'm studying. And I was like, oh, I, I think he was uh, a white man passing for black at a time when um <laughs> being a mediocre, poor white man wasn't as valuable as being a black man that was that light-skinned it. So uh, that sent me down that rabbit hole. And we're going to talk about that later with Coca-Cola. I also like took some notes. Uh, Vashti McKenzie, uh, I got to really, I knew who she was, but then as I'm researching, because that's what we should be doing when we're watching these things go down these rabbit holes, I'm like, oh, her grandmother on her mother's side was one of the founding members of the doctors at Howard. And her, and her granddaddy was a was a newsman, a black newspaper, black media person. So she's she comes from you know this this amazing background. So I wrote that down. In part two, of course, I got caught up in the music. They had you know the great venerable Shirley Caesar and you know all of the great gospel singers, Big Mama Thornton, who I knew about because she's the reason why we have Elvis Presley. But I didn't know her you know her deep roots in the church. And and I'm just going through these rabbit holes. This book, you know, that I actually oh, Howard Thurman. Yes. Yeah, I was like, oh, Howard Thurman. Okay, come I on, this. go ahead, Prof. Right. Go ahead. So I'm like, you know, going down, which is how we should be watching these things, right? Like, okay, right. I know about this. Let me start reading, you know, because this has been on my bookshelf because it was a gift. And I was like, I'm going to start reading this. And, you know, as I got to the end of it, I, I asked this question that I'm going to ask you and everyone who's watching. Who was this for? And, and what was the purpose of doing this? I know it's Black History Month, so we got to, you know, shepherd out all our Black History stuff. Um, but is this Black History and when I talk to you about religion, which we've had several lessons and classes on religion, we have so much more history, even in Christianity, than the Europeans. We have so much more history in God and religion and how we practice. This little 400-year criminal enterprise does not define Ooh. the Black church. So I, because of you, because of you, this is how I viewed it. And then I was like, I didn't feel good spiritually after watching it which was the exact opposite, I think, of what the purpose was. Or maybe, I don't know. Mm. I don't know either. Let me let me pause and, no, no. I keep saying it. Let me, 
let me keep rowing in the same direction you set us into just by mentioning something. And this is about for two reasons. One, the most important reason is never pass a public library, a bookstore, particularly a used bookstore, if you've got five minutes without digging your head in. Like I say, most of, most of my things are in storage, but I, have, I keep a few things a little bit closer so that I can, you know, put my hands on them. And also physical books are more than just information. They are in many ways like flowers in a garden. You know, you enjoy the beauty, but you also learn from nature and there's a spirit in them as well. Um, I was in New Orleans probably about 15 years ago in a bookstore and never come into a city if I got more than a minute to go. Like if I have to, if I'm coming somewhere for a meeting or being asked to participate in a conversation, a conference, symposium or something, even if I have to come in right before I try to make it enough time before. And a lot of times people, you know, everyone is always, you know, we have, we're family. So we'll come get you. No, that's OK. I'll meet you. Tell me what time I'm supposed to be there and where I'm supposed to be, because when I get off of the plane, train or out of the automobile, I'm going to the bookstore first if I got an hour or two. So in New Orleans, we were there, I think, for the National Council of Black Studies. So those, um, it was maybe 2006 or seven. And I went to no, no, it was the Association of Black Social Workers. My man, Joe Benton out of uh, South Carolina, was president of NABSW, Morris Jeff. I think he gave Morris Jeff lecture that year. So shout out to all those South Carolinians, Bernie Gallman and all them and all the social workers who were in the National Association of Black Social Workers, NABSW. Not, I mean, not, you know, nothing against. And, you know, in fact, please, if you're a social worker and join the American social workers, the black caucus, that's great. But I'm talking about the black ones. Whole conversation there about interracial adoption and, and their stance over over the years. But I was real, real honored to be there with uh, you know, at that point, probably maybe a couple of thousand black social workers in New Orleans. So I went to the uh, to the bookstores and I found this cost me fifteen dollars, which is the second reason I say, you know, a lot of stuff now the internet has basically it's been a you know blessing and a curse the blessing is that you can sit in your house and try to look for stuff i tweeted out a book today uh black power usa i mean putting out a book every day trying to say what are books that are kind of essential if you want to talk about african life in the world and since we're here in the united states right now stevie wonder my man we'll get to him in a minute um a lot of them have been about Africans in the United States, but not all of them. Tony Martin's Caribbean history, some other things. But I, I, I tweeted this one out by one of my favorites. Of course, the great Lerone Bennett Jr., Black Power USA. There he is as a youngster. Yeah, I love this because, of course, Johnson, as in John H. Johnson, as in Black publisher, Black editor, Black Power USA, about Reconstruction. And a couple of folks on Twitter, you know, were like, well, can we get this? Is it in print? And I've been trying to be very mindful this month of doing things that are in print and that are you know, accessible and that you can get versions of that are cheap and expensive. And also connecting to folks like Sankofa.com, uh, also uh, for our Yikwe Armaz books, B.B. Uh, Kwan, which is his American distributor. And they're very, very, very cheap. Um, and so um, our, our friends from the Zen Education uh, Program, uh, which is a phenomenal anchoring of folks who do work with educators, teachers, very important lesson plans, all kind of stuff, um, all at no cost. Uh, the Zen Ed folks uh, replied to a tweet to the tweet and said, here's a free copy of it. 
which is important. Um, shout out to all my friends there, Deborah Mencart and all her crew at, at Zen Ed. And so, you know, but but if you know, sometimes things are not in print, so it's been a blessing that you can go out and search on the net. We're why we're here together. The curse is that in order to stay in business, a lot of people have posted things from these little bookstores, which is a blessing for them too. We I keep support bookstores, please, particularly the used bookstores, our black bookstores, our used bookstores. But as a result, the commodification of books has just skyrocketed. I go into a bookstore now and you see these cats with these scanners. Sometimes I'm looking at my hand because sometimes they're small as on your ring finger and they're scanning barcodes, trying to determine, you know, not just how much they can get for a book, but where that book is in terms of its popularity. So they don't they don't know what the book is about. It could be about making cheese. It could be about the 13th Amendment. It could be about Wonder Bread. It don't matter. They just scanning barcodes. Now, many of the books that, you know, I have, you have no barcode. Well, that's before that. So so. You can still find books is what I'm saying. Go into bookstores. So I was in New Orleans. I found this book. cost me $15. I don't know if you can see the autograph that says Adam Clayton Powell. But this is Adam Clayton Powell Sr. to the point you hate. He's talking about the insurrection in Harlem in the early 1940s. Remember, they had a don't buy where you can't work campaign. And yes, we see Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And we see Adam Clayton Powell Sr. in Abyssinian Baptist Church in the Black Church documentary. Um and of course, we, we of course we know Cicely Tyson, who has been a member for over three decades of Abyssinian, had her ritual of initiation into eternity into Abyssinian. I've been to several of those rituals. Um, obviously, not Miss Tyson, although had it not been for this plague, like James Brown's James Brown and others who lay in state in Harlem, we would go up and pay our respects. But uh, I was there, spoke at the wake of, in fact, Yosef Ben Yakin and Dr. Ben. Shout out to David West and uh, some of the brothers and sisters who have contributed to making sure that that ritual took place. Uh, Dr. Ben lived into his mid 90s. It was a couple of years ago. Um, James Small officiated the great uh, James Small, who every year takes a pilgrimage to uh, Malcolm X's uh, gravesite. Uh, of course, we know tomorrow will mark the anniversary of his assassination. Um, I guess it will be the what 56th anniversary of the assassination of, of Malcolm X. Um, apparently there's uh, going to be some new information delivered literally into the hands of three of Malcolm's children, three of the sisters. I know Yasha is one. She's got a new book coming out, in fact, uh, detailing a deathbed confession by one of the uh, the, the cops who uh, helped set Malcolm up, locked up his security details so that he would be unguarded that day in the Audubon and so forth. Apparently that's going to happen today. But at any rate, um, yeah, Adam Clayton Powell, Adam, a senior, Adam Clayton Powell Jr., uh, John Henry Clark's funeral was at Abyssinian. So Abyssinian is a very important institution. And a lot of people didn't know about Adam Clayton Powell Sr. until you see him um, introduced and in, in that four-hour documentary, The Black Church. Talk about the Black in about 30 seconds. I just want to mention this because I'll start with this quote from Adam Clayton Powell Sr. This is one of the books that he wrote. Adam Clayton Powell Sr., this is a book called Riots and Ruins. Uh, this book is uh, dedicated to all those who are working for just and peaceful race relations without, uh, throughout the world. And by now, his son is the pastor. He's the pastor emeritus. You see, Adam Clayton Powell Sr., pastor emeritus, Abyssinian. The last chapter, called A Challenge and a Compromise. He starts with an epigraph, and we know epigraph is just a frame and quote at the beginning of a piece to tell you kind of frame the thing. 
So his, these are not his words, but he selected them to frame what he's going to talk about. Uh, this is from David Cohn, who's writing in The Atlantic in January 1944. And this book, book was published in 1944, um, 1945. Rather. David Cohn says, and Adam Clayton Powell Sr. quotes him for saying, whites and Negroes alike will each have to yield much to the other if American democracy, if American democracy is to survive. And each will have to yield out of conviction rather than by compulsion of law. Now, we didn't know that Professor Karen Hunter was going to, out of that whole four hour documentary, one of the names that she would select out to open us up this morning, this afternoon, this evening, wherever you are, would be Adam Clayton Powell Sr. Oh, let me go. So clearly the ancestor was supposed to give us those words to help us frame by count, by my rough count, the 16th documentary from Henry Gates in partnership with PBS. Professor Hunter, you say your spirit, and we're going to use that quote to frame it, to help us continue to frame it, because we're going to run, we run in the same direction. When you say it troubled your spirit, was any of that present before we talked? So, I mean, it's, it's difficult to know what I felt before we started having these conversations. But what happens when, like we talk about that clean glass of water, the more you drink it, the more when you taste something in you, there's a little grit in here. <laughs> it's a little soil in here. You 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 can recognize it. I don't know at what point, but I know that this is the kind of thing. Like I look forward to the PBS documentaries. I, I think I've watched all of them. Of course. Um, and you know, I'm I'm excited for the representation. But I, what I realized after watching this is that it left me empty. Mm. And I think back, I don't remember being full watching any of them. And That's even right. the things that I've learned, how does it free us? You know, at the end of the day, you've been doing these documentaries and are they for white people? Yes. So I remember growing up watching Eye on the Prize and I remember that shifting my spirit in mm -hmm. another way. It awakened me in another way. My my dad forced me to watch it and it it made me understand who we are. But once again, that's still through the lens of oppression and and you know, brutalization and that's and right. terrorized me as a young kid. And I didn't Ooh. feel feeling, you know, empowered as much. Uh, and, and it felt like I felt sitting in a classroom at my Catholic school where the black history was boiled down to this like one chapter on slavery. And then we moved on to the rest of the world history. But my goodness. The I yes. These documentaries are, you know, and, and who are they for? So I'm just, I just want to, you know, without, without being critical, because I think for some people who don't know anything, Right. It's an entry point. And so for me, I'm going to continue to watch everything because I'm pulling. It inspired me to sit down and sketch out the kind of documentary I would like to do. You know, uh -huh. so as that also, again, I, I think I came to a revelation that Adam Clayton Powell Sr. might have been a white man passing for black because it was more advantageous for him to do that. And he passed for white later on in his life because it was convenient to ride the train as a white man, which tells us a lot about race and how fake it is. That this man literally go back and forth <laughs> and that black people actually bestowed more gravitas and power on him because of how he looked and his son as well. But, you know, we'll, we can have that conversation when we talk about Coke. But yeah, I, I don't know whether 
you know, these con- I know these conversations broke something in me. So I want to say mm. thank you. I, it'll never be uh, back together. I appreciate it. <laughs> no, I appreciate you too. I mean, that's why I asked. Right, right quick. We've talked about this book a couple of times. Last week, we talked about the Panthers and uh, William O'Neill and Fashion, uh, the character that's played in Judas and the Black Messiah, uh, Lakeith Stanfield. Um, just a quick mention. The Eyes on the Prize series, and it's in series two where we see the Panthers, the the the, the hour on the Panthers. That's where you see the Black Student Movement. Um, very important work. That team was led by and a black man and centered by people of African descent. One of the great document documentary filmmakers of the age, along with St. Clair Bohr and others, uh, who apprenticed other great documentary filmmakers. I think about my friend Louis Masai, scribe video in, in West Philly. Shout out to the great Louis Masai, who's done so many important pieces and had people around him. Clyde Taylor, the great Tony Cade, uh, who worked on the bombing of Osage Avenue, which is about, um, of course, the move bombing, all that stuff. Louis Masai. Louis Masai was part of the team with Black Side Productions, which was Henry Hampton, the late Henry Hampton, the ancestor. John Else has written an excellent book called True South, Henry Hampton and Eyes on the Prize, the landmark series that reframed the civil rights movement. We talk about Ken Burns. If we must talk about Ken Burns in terms of PBS's favorite subsidized filmmaker, along with these foundations, you don't talk about uh, Ken Burns and then say, and then Henry Louis Gates. No, 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 no. Henry Hampton. Henry Hampton is a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Henry Louis Gates, brilliant. Henry Louis Gates, very shrewd and uh, accomplished and very skilled institution builder, networker as he called himself over 20 years ago now, maybe closer to 30, an academic entrepreneur uh, is not a documentary filmmaker. However, he does have an agenda and a point of entry because all documentaries are points of departure and they have uh, a message they're trying to craft and communicate. I love Ken Burns's documentaries, for example, because I have no investment in them. I'm very clear about what they are for me. They are uh, exercises in sharpening my critical reading skills to read film. Reading film is very different than reading, of course, other forms of textual production. Reading, for example, meaning listening to music or reading books, you know, particularly books without words, where you got to stitch together the narrative. Um, he has a very clear agenda. Ken Burns is absolutely committed to the American project. I am not, like Stevie Wonder. And I would suspect most people of African descent in this country, if we're being honest with each other in the quiet moments when we're being honest with each other, which is why my friend uh, Aisha Imani, Dr. Aisha Imani, a master teacher uh, out of Philadelphia, the, uh, the the head of Sankofa Freedom Academy, our K-12 Freedom School in Philly, used to always say to young people, let's sit and be quiet for a minute. And then somebody would make a noise and she would say, see, I just want to see before we go back to being quiet, trying again, one of the most difficult things for human beings is to be with themselves. Mm. And so particularly for young black and brown children who are who are engaged in the act of survival, many of our children, including everybody in down in Louisiana and Texas, Gary Faria, my sister Gussie, you know, my brother-in-law Randy, my niece Eden, my mama down there, you know, uh, Ifabar has been keeping us up when I see a, a, a Shanti Reese has been giving us updates down there. And uh, the governor of Texas, uh, may you go to where you would hope I would go. In fact, I know you're going there. Uh, in this case, I break with Curtis Mayfield. If there's a hell below, we ain't all going the same place, bro. And the Raphael Cruz, my man, Rafi, 
my man. Anyway, let's not even get off into that. That yeah. ain't even a rabbit hole. That's a that's a that's a that's a snake hole. <laughs> but and, and and you know, before you continue, I just you know, I, I bring this up not to raise criticism or cast aspersions because that's not the exercise that will free us. That's right. You know, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you today is because we need to learn how to watch what you were just about to do. Yes. How do we watch these things when they come up? How do we watch these biopics? How do we watch these documentaries? What is the what what questions must we ask so that we can, you know, not, you know, not only not be fed, but you know, kind of be indoctrinated in 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 self uh you know self-hatred, quite Ooh. frankly. You know, so I just I want to have that conversation. It's not about Skip Gates or anybody, you know, not no, even about Skip It's about us and how it, we take this information. It is. You know, like I used it as inspiration. And again, it, it allowed me to do a deeper dive into some people that I knew in passing, but I wanted to know more about. So, you know, I'm grateful for it. But how should we be watching these things? And what's the what's well, the skill that we should build? Well, that's that's very good. OK, so let me let me let me let me do this in terms of cat, kind of groups of folk, groupings of folk. For teachers, it's a resource. You're a teacher. I'm a teacher. There's a lot of teachers who come in every 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 week, including parents who are all teachers, get children. It should be as it should be viewed as a resource, a point of departure, a point of entry. There should be no frame, no second of any documentary that is not untroubled by your now saying, This is where I begin. Let me go, make up my own mind. For those of us who um are in that group but also in the group of of thinking very um very consistently about the nature of black life in the modern world you should always look at these documentaries as forms of propaganda because that's what they are for everybody this is a hard and fast rule a documentary is not a substitute for reading and study. Don't watch a documentary and think you, you can't watch that documentary and come away with a nuanced understanding of the black church. In fact, if you read the companion volume, which was dropped the same time as the documentary, the black church, Henry Louis Gates, Gates says in the volume that there is <laughs> there's no such thing as the monolithic black church. He says, just like the black vote, or the black perspective, there is no black monolithic black church. He says, what the black, I'm, he says, I'm, he's writing this in the book. What I'm using, what he says, what I, when I call the black church, I'm really talking about institutions of organized religion. But I ain't what you made a documentary on. You said the black church. And the sister in the fourth hour, and for those of you who haven't seen it, for those of you who, um, don't want any spoilers you might put your fingers in your ears i have absolutely no respect for spoiler alerts for documentaries because it's all historical uh narrative that people are trying to re-narrate for their own ideological purposes we'll get into that in a second so if you want to quote unquote spoiler the word like you watching a movie you should probably turn away for uh, the next 30 seconds in hour four when the sister is talking about uh ferguson the minister uh hmm, her name will come to me and I, I jotted it down because i've seen her but i didn't remember um she said that these young people in the streets have moved away from the institutions 
Let me see if I wrote it down. I thought I did. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we are. Here we are. She said they moved away from institutions, but Tracy Blackman, the sister says, she's, these young people, they abandoned the institution. They didn't necessarily abandon God. The Ferguson uprising was church. I was like, see, there's the frame. The Gates is working against ideologically. We're going to walk through this. Tracy Blackman spilled the beans because by then they've come to the end of the fourth hour where the whole thing, well, much of the whole narrative of the black church is used as jet fuel for the appearance of the political Christ. The man Gates calls America's pastor, Barack Obama, standing at Emmanuel Baptist Church to bury um, Brother Pinckney and, 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 and the Africans who were assassinated by the racist who still lives unlike so many of our children who are just struggling for freedom in the streets, um, Dylan Roof, I remember exactly where I was when Barack Obama dropped down into oh, amazing grace. And them Africans behind him in the African Methodist Episcopal Church, including Vashti McKenzie, the first black woman to be the bishop of the AME Church, who was uh, featured as one of the talking heads in the, in the documentary, stood up. You know how the Negro does. That ain't Christian. That's African. That's the, Robert Ferris Thompson might call it to get down quality or call and response. You get up. Uh, uh, me. I remember where I was. I had just come out of a bookstore, Mercer Street Books, down in uh, down near a campus of New York University. In fact, across the street from the dorms, New York University. And I was sitting in a little cafe eating a turkey burger, sitting at the counter, watching the funeral. And when I saw him do that, I just started laughing. My man SU, the political SU. Barack Hussein Obama. It's very important to understand that that whole narrative, that four-hour narrative on the black church to resolve itself in a moment of political theater. I'm not saying it wasn't sincere. I absolutely believe it was. In fact, I, I, I don't know Barack Obama. I only met him one time, and that was in passing. That's when he was in the Illinois State Senate. We were at a groundbreaking in Chicago for a black theater on the south side of Chicago. And he was trailing along with the rest of the Illinois state delegation that helped get funding because he was a, wasn't quite a backbencher, but he was learning the skills that would allow him to do what he needed to do and go where he needed to go. I think this was probably before Bobby Rush beat that ass when he ran against him in the Congress. Cause you know, black folk were like, who is this guy? Whatever. I knew him actually ironically because I had read dreams from my father because he published that just after he came out of, uh, out of uh, Harvard law school. As a man to be watched. I mean, Barack Obama didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, it's uneven. It's pro it's well overstuffed. It could probably be shrunk by a third. It's the size of a telephone book. But I would encourage you all to go get David Garrow's book, Rising Sun, which kind of walks you through Barack Obama's damn near like a, di a daily diary. This guy, man. But at any rate. So when the documentary kind of resolves near the very end with Obama, that just before Skip Gates goes back to church in West Virginia and has his own personal moment. You know, there's an authenticity there in terms of these experiences. I remember exactly where I was. I was looking. And I just started laughing. I said, because we. As people generally tend to consume popular culture in a way that allows single moments to speak to much more nuanced situations. It's very important to understand. And using that clip at the end of that four hours. Return to the beginning of the four hours and how that was framed. And you'll see that that documentary, like every documentary, was set up to tell a story. Those interviews were conducted over the last several years. 
And as they were conducted, they've then been clipped. I mean, anybody tell you documentary filmmaker, they take hours and hours and hours and hours of stuff. And then you get 15 seconds here, 30 seconds here, 20 seconds there, because the filmmaker, the real, and any filmmaker would tell you this, the, the making of the film is in the editing room. You've shot everything. Now you're going to tell a story. Gates has a story to tell, and we're going to walk through this. So pause for a second. Set the context for how we should look at these things. Again, as a teacher, it's a resource. A point of departure for everybody. It is not a substitute for study and reading. For those who are thinking about the question of blackness in America. Nah, you got to look for the ideological war effect and why 16 different documentaries in one form or another, beginning in 1998 with the two nations of black America, then a documentary on Eldridge Cleaver in 99, then Wonders of the African World, a six-part series in 1999, then America Beyond the Cutter Line in 2004, then American American Lives 1 and 2. Start getting the DNA test. It's all here in Louis Gates. Then looking for Lincoln. I'm like, oh, you, look, you can't look for Lincoln. You're not. Like, okay, we got to cross over, right? Faces of America, 2010. All right, I see. Oh, mm, let me go. Let me go to Latin America. Blacks in Latin America. Then finding your roots, 2012 to just about now. The African American, the African Americans, many rivers to cross. Many of these books got. Many of these films got companion volumes, 2018. Then Black America since Martin Luther King, 2016. Then America. Then Africa's Great Civilizations, 2017. Then Reconstruction, two years ago, and then the Black Church this year. Most of those with companion volumes, bells and whistles, carpet bomb, uh, accolades. And you ask yourself, why this guy, why this narrative? And they all have the same narrative, which we're going to talk about in a second. There is no black community. There is no black church. There is no black uh, vote. There is no black perspective. There are many perspectives. OK, yes, of course. As such. But when you say the black church is really about institutional religion that's not the black church in fact this book up by michael gomez it's called black crescent the experience and legacy of african african muslims in the americas professor gomez brilliant brother at new york university this is what he does he divides that into parts one and two part one he's talking about the muslims who were brought on the ships here if there were Christians brought on the ships from Africa, you could count them on one hand, if there were. And I'm not talking about them people that on the beach, they made the sign of the cross, burnt something in their forehead or their chest and put them in the ship, say they had Christianized them because those weren't Christians. I'm talking about people who accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, you put them on the same. In fact, standing at Cape Coast, the first time I was there in 1996, over the grave of one of those Africans who they had converted to Christianity, who was then praying for the other Africans. We had a real serious conversation about the nature of miseducation and betrayal. Because the Christianity that came out of Western Eurasia, you know, Christianity like Islam and Judaism are African exports. They leave Africa. But by the time it comes back into Africa on the west, uh, west coast of Africa, coast west, west coast of Africa, the Portuguese, the Spanish, and them, the Catholics, that's not African Christianity. That's white supremacy. Uh, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's and, two different things. Well, go, go ahead. And, and watching that, I, f I felt like what the black church did was what they tried to get Nat Turner to do, and then he did something different. Right. But, but now through these documentaries, the work of Nat Turner is being done. The what they wanted Nat Turner to do is now being done. And I, I'll jump jump out from there. No, that's it. in fact. Don't leave. Don't leave. Let me ask you a question because. 
let me and, and this is full disclosure i don't watch skip gates documentaries when they're on i have everything every every documentary i just walked y'all through i have the dvd and the companion book because i have to have it because i'm a teacher which means this is so what but what i have to do is target a time usually between midnight and 6 a.m <laughs> at some point usually in the dead of summer when ain't nobody gonna call and nobody go back and i said okay let me get my mind right i'll sleep all afternoon evening wake up all right okay and watch <laughs> in one thing why because i know what he's doing <laughs> you know what i'm saying i ain't mad at him i understand because you know i mean if you take the michael joseph jackson position in the whiz you can't win you can't get even you can't get out of the game then you understand that skip gates is like i'm trying to save my people we can't win we can't get even and we can't get out of the game i get it so i ain't mad at him but just like he said in the book that's the companion to this documentary, which I suspect at least probably two or three people watching did not know there was a companion book to this documentary. And there's always a companion book to the documentaries. And hell, there's a whole curriculum for some of this stuff because the people pushing him to your point here are making a statement. They're trying to get him to do what you couldn't get in that turn. To do. So the question I want to ask you right quick is because when you said, you know, we should talk about this. I said, okay, I gritted my teeth. I went on the PBS website. I'm going to watch this. And anyway, well, no, what I did was I watched, I watched 15 minutes here. Then I'll drag it and look at the images. Stop at the experts. Listen, drag a little bit more. Listen, drag a little. I still haven't done my midnight to 4 a.m. All right, hell, I'll look at this. But see, I know these cats. So I know the rhythm and then I saw the piece. So what I did not see in there, and maybe I missed it because I was, I was, you know, hey, you do you scan, you can see all the images. So I'm going, you know, deliberately. And so I probably watched the hours worth over the four hours. And I looked and saw where the narrative anchors were because it's very easy to do once you know the rhythm of these documentaries. Maybe I missed it. Wasn't that Turner mentioned? Uh, Denmark Vesey. I don't, I no. don't remember. Yeah, well, well, if you don't remember, that means it wasn't prominent enough. And so, see, what I'm saying, and, and, and he mentioned Vessi, though, right? Yeah, Denmark Vessi was mentioned because you had to bring him in because you talked about the AME, and then you had to bring in Vashti McKenzie, right? And yeah, and then talk about the Methodist being, you know. Uh, but, but but guess where he didn't mention Denmark Vessi? Yeah. So someone said yes, Nat Turner was mentioned. Okay. okay. Good. Right. Very good. Good to know. Okay. But I know where he didn't mention Denmark Vessi. In hour four, when he started talking about the murders at, at Emmanuel, Emmanuel AME Church, and you know what? In fact, it was uh, at the ritual, the union ritual for our brother Cedric, who joined us over a month ago from Brazil. You know, Cedric from South Carolina, and we had the ritual right there in the well of that church. And Clementa Pinckney was the minister. And I poured libation in that church. That is the church that Denmark Vesey and them founded. It's the, it's the mother church of the AME church in the South. Mother Bethel, of course, in Philly is the mother. The National Cathedral of African Methodism is here in D.C. Um, very important. Um, the, 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 our good brother William Lamar, Bill Lamar. Remember when the Proud Boys tried to take down their Black Lives Matter sign? The, the National Cathedral is here, Metropolitan AME, down in downtown DC. And the capital church of the AME Church in the South, of course, is Mother Bethel. I'm sorry, 
uh, Mother Manual. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, you know, Mother Manual is very interesting because that is a church that was built by Denmark Vesey and them coming out of enslavement. And as a result, you know, when the Vesey uh, rebellion was broken up and they put those Africans on trial and killed those Africans, you know, death penalty and all this stuff. One of the Africans they banned from the state was the AME Bishop, the second Bishop of the AME church. The first Bishop of the AME church is of course the, the right Reverend Richard Allen. Um, uh, Who was also mentioned. Yes, yeah, so we got to mention Richard Allen, the second bishop of the AME Church, South Carolina, South Carolinian, Morris Brown. Yes. Morris Brown was banned from South Carolina because those crackers said any of these free Negroes, remember Denmark Vesey won his freedom in a lottery. I mean, he fought his way out of freedom, you know, and so they had what they might call the invisible church at that point. And then they, they, they get the building, but that, that those rituals that what they have been doing in terms of worship had, precedes even having a physical church that we call now Mother Emmanuel. But Morris Brown, they accused Morris Brown, Amy's church, second bishop, of being part of the Vesey conspiracy. And they tried to put out of two things. They tried to put out of South Carolina any free Negro who they thought was involved with the conspiracy. Ain't but a handful of free Negroes in South Carolina at the time. The second thing is the state legislature uh, um, appropriates uh, some money and designates it for an institution that will be created and enhanced in order to make sure that this never this thing kind of this kind of thing never happens again. Yeah, it's the origin of the uh, institution we now call the Citadel. But mm-hmm. it, but at any rate, and I'm sure all that was in the documentary, but what struck me was, I'm not sure at all, I will look at it when I do my brutal, I got to watch this next Henry Gates documentary, right? But what I do know is that when Sharpton and them come back at the end to talk about the invasion, the murder, they play the call where the sister is calling 911 saying, I think he's still in here, he's shooting people. And then they move to the Amazing Grace with the whole G- political Jesus moment. You know, he is, he's America's pastor. There's no such thing. You better go read Adam Clayton Powell Sr. It ain't no such thing as America. If it's going to be one, we're going to have to give something up out of conviction. And the reason I started laughing in New York when Obama started singing is because I know that black people are standing because that's deep in our thing, even though the damn song Amazing Grace is from a slave master. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. It's, it's, the, it's the cadence. It's the rhythm. It's the memories. Yes. And then white America is looking like this is why we love him. He's not going to call for fire and brimstone. He's not going to call for political retribution. He's not he's not descended from uh, Denmark. Vissi. This dude standing up over the bodies of people who were members of the church of a man who led a rebellion against white supremacy and enslavement in South Carolina and reaches his hand out and said they wanted us to revolt. But no, we're not going and take that back to a previous hour where he murks his pastor, Jeremiah Wright. Because I was there outside the National Constitution Center when Obama gave that speech where he threw Jeremiah Wright and his grandmama, white grandmama, under the bus. Talking about bitterness and there's all this stuff, ignorance and the, the, the black the black community is no different than any other community. We have our joys and pains. We have our ignorance. We have our, okay. that he Him and Michelle Obama love that word ignorant when they start, and bitter. Bitter is really their favorite word. When they're talking about Jeremiah Wright. In, in, in Michelle Obama's uh, uh, memoir, Becoming, and in the first volume of Barack Obama's memoirs, they start talking about Jeremiah Wright and bitter. So when Henry Gates in 2021 tries to come back and say, you know, you know, Obama had to distance himself, but when he's there in South Carolina at the funeral, he's figured out a way to, to manage. No, Negro, that's your ideology. Because he they, they keep coming back to throw my friend, my brother, our elder, Jeremiah Wright, under the bus. And so my thing is, nah, but 
But he was yeah. in the documentary. Yeah, well, well, but yeah, but look what he was in the documentary for. He wasn't in the documentary to talk about black theology. He was in the documentary to explain why white people got mad at him. And then very quickly, they insert another talking head. And mind you, most of these talking heads are from Ivy League institutions, the same cast of characters in every damn documentary he's ever made. Because what he's also doing is saying, these are the experts you should listen to. Don't pay no attention to the rest of them. Now, if it's a church singer or it's a deacon or something, I'll drop them in for the authenticity. But the experts... Nah, these are the people you should listen to. So they dropped Jeremiah right in for a split second to talk about, you know, why people may have misunderstood or whatever. And then they dropped somebody else in to explain, oh, I love the frame. What was the, uh, what was, the, what did they say? They said, uh, oh my God, how did they explain it? They, oh yes, fear and mystery. Oh, I love it. I think I was uh, my friend Barbara Savage from University of Pennsylvania. She says, the thing that many white Americans don't understand because they've never been to the black church, they never, they don't understand the black church is that they have a fear. And there's a mystery about the black church. This is right after you get Jeremiah Wright with a trenchant political critique that is at the heart of black church preaching in many pulpits. And then you say, well, Obama had to let him go, which I think probably is true, which I think Jeremiah Wright would probably have to say, yeah, that's true, because white people are not going to vote for you. It's too black. It's too strong. And Barack Obama, the political magician, America's pastor, according to uh, Henry Louis Gates, which I would agree with if there was an America, but as Adam Clayton Powell Sr. said, it ain't no America until the people get together out of conviction and not uh, coercion to say there's going to be an America and we ain't got there yet, Skipper. In fact, Stevie Wonder is like, to quote Stevie Wonder, talking to Oprah, who's so prominent in the documentary as well, what kind of shit is that? <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> so anyway, so in other words, <laughs> we'll get to Stevie in a minute, but you see how they're narrating. So yeah, now you can say, well, I had Jeremiah right in. I let him tell his side of the story. No, you didn't. You 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 came to Chicago. You sat with Jeremiah Wright probably for several hours, and then you took 35 seconds and went right back to your talking heads to make sense of Jeremiah Wright to white people. You ask who that audience is? The audience is white people. But that's why PBS, that's why PBS has been in every documentary he has done. And sometimes they partnership WGBH Boston PBS affiliate, the BBC. They've done that as well. You know, in other words, because they're trying to frame a narrative of blackness that's black enough to get black people to say, oh, okay. But most importantly, that defangs the idea of blackness for a modern world system that continues to profit from our labor while keeping their foot on our neck. That's the class issue. We're gonna come to that in a second as well. But let me finish this up. There were Muslims on those ships. Now, I heard Islam introduced when they started talking about the Moorish Science Temple a little bit and then the nation of Islam. Right. And then you see another talking head. The nation of Islam. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They, the point of entry for the nation was Garvey. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Gar Garvey said that perhaps this should be another theology, another way, a critique. So the God would look in their books like The Color of Christ. Hell, there are 15 volumes of and counting. I think there's another couple that needs to come out. Edited by Robert Hill, the Marcus Garvey Papers. You can read about, in fact, no. I'm, 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 Don't do it. Yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. But my point is that, nice, well played, sir. So you're going to introduce the concept of a black God in the 1920s. Are you serious? Are we serious right now? First of all, there were Muslims on those ships. Phyllis Wheatley was probably a Muslim. The scholars agree probably one of her Muslim names is probably Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. But we know her as Phyllis Wheatley because that's where she fits. Now, 
if you go get Honoré Fanon Jeffers' book, The Age of Phyllis, she's going to walk you back through it. But you probably won't do that. You might just turn on a PBS cartoon documentary and think you know about Phyllis Wheatley. Her name not Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis was the boat that brought her here. The Wheatleys were the group that enslaved her. Let's be clear. But she came from Senegal, Wolof. Those people were Muslim by that time. She's, she's a Muslim. When you know she's a Muslim, you read her poetry very differently. You read her poetry very differently when she's talking about the East. You know, in fact, Michael Gomez, here's the book you want to read before you get to any discussion of the black church. I'm sorry. Let me finish up Gomez. Gomez part one, this book. Gomez part one, he deals with the Muslims who came here on the ships. Then part two, he comes with the people who became Muslims in that late 19th, early 20th century. Noble Drew Ali, the nation, Malcolm. But when people think Muslim in America in the United States, black Muslims, they think the nation. No, guess what? It wasn't no Christians came on the boats, which is why you start the damn documentary with slavery and the complete erasure of African culture. And then you readmit African culture through some cultural rituals, but never the political sensibility. See, that's that's the ideological piece in terms of the curriculum framework that, of this documentary, all of the work really that they're doing and he's doing. And, you know, and I'm not saying Skip Gates by itself. Gates is, you know, perfectly lovely brother, whatever, you know, but I'm, I'm talking about the project. But what Gomez is doing. Is saying you got to expand this notion of religious institutions. So that's one book. The other book. Get this book right here by Michael Gomez, Exchanging Our Country Marks. Michael Gomez, The Transformation of African Identities in the Colonial and Antebellum South. Gomez goes through, and I've talked about this book before, but I'm mentioning it now with this documentary. He goes through the different, uh, some of the major uh, national groups, people from the Senegambia, the Bada Benin, Islam, and early America. He got a whole chapter on that. Praying on the bead is what they call it. Because, you know, the Muslims had a prayer bead. The enslaved Africans who weren't Muslims, that's them, that's them Africans that pray on the bead. You know what I'm saying? That's chapter uh, four. You don't get to Christianity until chapter nine, turning down the pot, Christianity in the African-based community. And then you see that these Africans are not Christians. And when they try to, first of all, many of the enslavers would not try to Christianize them. They say, these people get off the boat, you can't make them Christians. As the young people would say today, facts. <laughs> Whatever you praying to, I'm praying against. When you walk through South Carolina, you go through Charleston, you go walk around the blocks where Mother Emanuel is, you see all these raw iron fences around these white churches, and some of the locals and some of the Africans will tell you in South Carolina, them enslaved Africans that made them fences, put their symbols in there to keep whatever them crackers was praying to in there and away from them. In other words, they not Christians. Y'all stop trying to make our people something they not unless you got a project you're involved in. So I'm not saying they weren't spiritual, because I'm going to tell you right now, our sister blew the cover at the end. She said these young people abandoned the institution, but they didn't abandon God. Why? God and institution are two different things. And when Skip Gates in the book says the black church, I I'm using it. There's no, one, there's no such thing as the black church. Right. I'm talking about uh, institutionalized religion. Yeah. And you didn't let Jeremiah Wright do what Jeremiah Wright does. After Barack Obama was inaugurated, and I'm going to come back to Gomez in a second on it. After Barack Obama was inaugurated, I'll never forget. Reverend Dr. Wright spent a week at Howard. No, this is just before the inauguration, at the election. This is January. He spent a week at Howard. We hosted him. In fact, we have something called the John and Eula Cleveland Chair for African-American Studies. Uh, John and Eula Cleveland, two labor, labor uh, stalwarts here in D.C. and nationally, who uh, in their will left us a million dollars since we have an endowed chair. I used to have to fight over it. I ain't really fighting no more because as I'm moving away from all that uh, administrative stuff at Howard and getting back to what I was doing before I got in, caught up in that stuff, 
I'm very happy to not have to do that kind of thing anymore. But I remember then I called Jeremiah Wright. See, you know, you, you come into town, huh? You need an office. So we gave him the John Eula Cleveland chair, a little office in our department of Afro-American studies, gave him a key. And uh, I put that key in his hand. I'll never forget. And he, that was his residence for a week. He gave lectures at the Divinity School, the Law School, College of Arts and Sciences, did public forums, sat with students, preached at chapel that Sunday. Obama inaugurated that Monday. And of course, you remember how that was, Ken. Everybody just, you know. So my mom and them came up, everybody, you know, old black. I said, black folk, old black people, anybody black over 75 years old should have a heated leather chair down there on the National Mall. And then nobody else get to come until, and I don't care about the politics, the neoliberalism, I get it all. But what I'm saying is my mother was born in Russell County, Alabama. Do you understand Jim Crow? Do you understand the lost cause? Do you understand what a cracker is in Alabama in the 1920s? So I don't give a damn. Guess what? She sit there and watch. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, we, we, now we're going to argue with this cat. He gets inaugurated on Monday. Yep. On Tuesday. We Now. And that's what people did. In fact, some people say we stayed at the inauguration. We still at the inauguration when it comes to the Obamas because some people mad right now because I'm ch I'm being, go go read Becoming. Go read uh, Barack Obama's volume one about Jeremiah Wright. If you think I'm exaggerating, if anything, I'm understating what they did to the brother. But at any rate, Jeremiah Wright preaches that Sunday. So we in there, the place is packed. 1500 in Crampton, overflow already in Rankin Chapel, overflow outside. People can't, you know, they got the, the student center is overflow because it was what uh, Bernard Richardson, the dean of the chapel of Howard calls. Jeremiah Wright Sunday. He preaches every Sunday before Martin Luther King's birthday. And if you remember the inauguration coincided with that. All this stuff converged. Jeremiah Wright gave a sermon. I'll never forget. And just before the sermon started, he asked me to leave my seat. I was sitting in the back there. And there's my mama, my sister, my brother-in-law, my niece and nephew. We all sitting in the back, packed in there, right? He said, Dr. Carl, I want you to come down. I'm like, you calling me Bro, you know, these cats always got a bull, bullseye on my back. What you getting ready? <laughs> so he says, in front of these people, I want to tell y'all that a car gave me an office. I said, I wasn't us, brother. It was, it was, you know, no, it was you. And he said, I want to give you this, return this to you, the key. So he puts the key in my hand on the stage at Crampton. I looked at it. He had walked away from the microphone. So I came again and I said into his ear, this is your key. He came back to the microphone and said, that the car said, I can keep this key. And everybody started cheering. I know Jeremiah, right? I don't know whether he had, no, it, he know me. He know me certainly well enough to know that that's probably what I was going to say to him. So what y'all not ever going to do is make me leave this guy. I got a key to office. <laughs> anyway, I love, I love that brother. But anyway, the sermon he gave, I'll never forget. It was called, Look Who's in the Stand. See, Henry Gates wanted to talk to Jeremiah Wright about Barack Obama. That's, that's the narrative. That's where he edited it in. But what Jeremiah Wright would have been better doing, along with a group of other ministers, deaconesses, you know, you got clips of Sister Rosetta Tharp, you got clips of Mahalia Jackson, you got Thomas A. Dorsey. And in the contemporary moment, you got a couple of ministers. And the one that you let in let all the thing out when Tracy Blackman said them young people abandoned the institution. They didn't abandon God. Oh, you, <laughs> yeah, and, and it was so good, and I'm sure they kept it in. The editors are, that's great. But what you missed is what she said. Because when Jeremiah Wright gave his sermon, look who's in the stands, he said, you know, I used to be a relay race runner. Jeremiah Wright, one of the great ministers, one of the great preachers. Preacher different than a minister, I think. We saw C.L. Franklin, one of my favorites, Satan. Man, 
C.L. Franklin. Boy, you ever hear his sermon, Satan go to a prayer meeting? Yeah, man. C.L. Franklin, the, the, the father of Aretha Franklin. Uh, C.L. Franklin and that, and you can get all his sermons. They're all on they were all on LP. I have just about all the LPs, but then they went to CD and then they're probably online. In fact, Aretha Franklin gave Barack Obama at his inauguration because she sang and they put it in there as well, thereby giving Barack Obama America's pastor, apparently, the uh the uh the imprimatur of the black church. Because here's Aretha singing, uh, was it America the Beautiful or whatever she sang at the inauguration? I try not to keep stuff like that in the front of my mind, but at any rate. She gave him a complete set of her father's sermons. And you think, goddamn, America was something. You better go listen to uh, Cecil L. Franklin. Cecil L. Franklin said, Satan at a prayer meeting. If you said, you see the devil at a prayer meeting, he didn't walk in. He rode somebody in. So when, when you see the black church on PBS and you be like, this don't really sit with my spirit. The black church didn't put itself on PBS. Yeah, it, it rode somebody in. And this somebody was Henry Louis Gates. So at any rate, Look who's in the stands. Jeremiah Wright narrates the history of the black church. And he does it through the metaphor of a relay race. And he uses himself as an example. He said, I was on, I ran track and I was the slow guy. My I was the slowest in the relay of the four in the relay. So you put your slow person usually maybe in the third position, the first position, maybe it's your second fastest runner. Those of you are track folk. I haven't run track since I was in junior high school. I wanted to be a hurdler and I pulled my hamstring and I never got a chance to do it, but I recovered enough from cross country. So I ran the mile and I ran the four by four because I was fast, but I also ran middle distance, but I wanted to be a hurdler. And I just said, it's probably for best you know what I'm saying? because I played baseball in high school, not there, but I never ran track again. And, you know, but, but I'm saying it to say this. So I, re I remember the order from the days, right? I think I was second. Yeah. Anthony squeaky Lawrence was, was our, was our first, was our first runner. In other words, you put your second fastest run in the first and you put your fastest cat at the fourth, right? So the other two, maybe two, maybe three, you put your slowest of the four. He said, I was the slowest of the four. And so then he starts narrating. He said, but the, but our anchor, then he starts talking about your brother who's the anchor. He passed it off because they had caught up to me. And I was like, we're not going to win. But I knew we were going to win. Why? Because the fourth was our fastest. And he starts describing it. And of course, the metaphor is the fourth is Jesus. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? In other words, and then he starts talking about the history of the black church. The black church started and our African ancestors and we were going strong in the second. Uh, they handed it off to the next phase and he's, now he started talking about the early church, what Gates and them talking about the Hush Harbor and stuff. See, because Jeremiah Wright is always going to start this, the history of the church of African people in Africa, which they didn't do. Now, they could say they did, but what they really did was start with slavery. And that's what they have to do. Ideology. How are you framing this? We didn't leave nothing in Africa. We brought our songs. We brought our rhythms. We brought our faith in God, which we're going to talk about in a second. And we poured that into the black church. The most important institution says that in the first 10 minutes of the documentary. The most important, probably the most important institution. <laughs> when last time you've been in church? Skip. In fact, you saw him at the end when he was going up in the church in South Carolina. I made it back. I made it back. And that's after they've rehearsed, <laughs> which means, you know, you easing back up. Ain't y'all ever been out of church for years, then ease back up in your home church? <laughs> Those of us who've been in the black church know what that looked like. That was Skip going back. to. And I've been through that little town 
in West Virginia. In fact, I know where to use bookstores. In fact, I've talked to people who sold books to Henry Louis Gates. There's a whole nother narrative there, but it's not for PBS consumption, not for white based consumption. Look who's in the stand. Jeremiah Wright says, I passed it off. And the brother took off because that third leg where they caught up to him, he said, after the first leg, the Africans came with there and he starts naming the, and see Jeremiah Wright will walk you through the history of African spirituality. Okulukun, he'll walk you through Oludumare, Nyame, he go back to Amun, who although hidden is the source of all life, power, and health, the ancient Egyptian, because Jeremiah Wright used to go to Egypt every year. In fact, we were there the same time when Jeremiah, when uh, Asa Hilliard made transition. He was with us, and he was with Jeremiah Wright and them. He had left, he, he had left Jeremiah Wright and them. He was down in that swan with us, and that's when the sickness really took him. The malaria overcame him, and they got him back to Cairo, Jeremiah Wright had called one of his parishioners, not parishioners, that's Catholic, one of his congregants, one of the members of his church to arrange for, for Asa Hilliard to be airlifted out to Europe because they don't see malaria in Northeast Africa. It's not, it's not something you see. And he didn't get it there either. Who was this congregant? The junior senator from Illinois, Barack Obama, who said, yeah, yeah, we'll get this done. And so they were ready and Asa said, nah, no. Nah. I'm going to make transition. I'm going to make transition in Africa. And Asa Hilliard made transition in the shadow of the pyramids with Jeremiah Wright. So my point is, Jeremiah Wright will walk that first leg. He's going to go through Africa. They didn't do that in the PBS documentary because that's not what this is about. This is all about the American project, one that is still a fiction, even if you listen to Adam Clayton Powell Sr., until there's some conviction behind joining. And I'm here to tell you that we ain't never had that conviction. And some of us, like Stevie Wonder, may be like, I'm out because I don't want my children's children's children over here begging to be accepted, begging to be. And I love how in the opening part of the first part of the documentary, you see Otis Moss III, my friend, good brother, who is the pastor now of Trinity, who followed Jeremiah Wright preaching a sermon to an integrated, not only an integrated congregation, he ain't preaching from Trinity, but not only a, a majority white congregation. And Henry Louis Gates in the front trying to act like he no call and response. That's right, say it. And I'm like, boy, anybody ever been ushering in a church where somebody don't know call and response, you know who they are immediately. That's somebody you ain't got to worry about when they hit that good old good one but the doors of the church are open and people get happy. You ain't got to worry about them. They ain't going to get happy unless they just unburden themselves completely. And I don't know. The black church is pretty powerful. You sing the right song, Skip Gates might confess because, see, that thing is beyond your head. That gets in your heart. But at any rate, so when you see the third leg, Jeremiah Wright says, I was the slower one. They were catching up to me. He said, and the black church, once it came out of Africa, the first leg, that spiritual, spiritual traditions. The second leg, the formation of the kind of uh, hush harbors, you know, the spiritual traditions we had. And Michael Gomez will tell you in this book that, in fact, the majority, in fact, I should just read it. If I could find it quick, I would. But he makes the point that it's very important for us to make here that, well, let me see. Look, black professors of the faith, in other words, black Christians, in rejecting planter religion, because then first Africans was like, what you praying to? I'm praying to this. Okay, we're praying against that. No Christians. I didn't see that in the documentary because it ain't going to be there. The next generation, their children, they learn from their parents. Nah, I ain't messing with you. And slowly they're realizing this is the religion of the slave master. Go back and read David Walker, 1827. 1820, yeah, 1827, 1829, David Walker's appeal. David Walker said, I'm a Christian. You're not a Christian. You're the devil. Why? Because you gave me this book. I read the book. I'm looking at all the behavior in the book. I'm saying you're doing all the behavior. I ask you if you're a Christian. You say you are. And I realize you're not a Christian. You're, in fact, the devil. The white man is the devil. That ain't Elijah Muhammad in the 1930s documentary. 
That's David Walker in the 1820s and 30s. So let's be clear. My point, though, you can't put that in there because you're really trying to you got ideology you're trying to advance. So anyway, go ahead. Gomez says, Mike, uh, Mike Gomez says, black professors of the faith in rejecting planet religion and its accommodationist message, accommodationist. That's the message of the documentary. Were motivated by an entirely different and separate ethic. Right. Read this. Also read uh, Cedric J. Robinson's Black Movements in America where he says, I'll get to this in a second, Black Movements in America. He calls it Afro-Christianity. It's different. And, and, to, and to the credit of a lot of the interlocutors, particularly the ministers, Barber, uh, Sharp, it's a different Christianity. He says, according to Jackson, and I think he may be quoting Luther Porter Jackson, who was one of Carter G. Wilson's boys, only one out of every nine Blacks was on official church rosters in Virginia, for example, in 18, by 1860, which is slightly more than 11%. Taking Virginia as representative of the South, I think it was, this means that only uh, 22%, including the invisible church, the thing they always love to talk about that, of the black community may have been Christian by the dawn of the Civil War. Don't play, Skip. The AME church is founded in Philly. They get blamed in the South with the Vesey Rebellion and they ban the free blacks. See, the class issue involved in this whole narrative is and you see it come up in the tensions in hours three and four when they talk about the urbanization, the people come to Chicago and other places. And there's this sense that uh, black people who are not in those, quote unquote, black in the black elite are looked down upon by those who are. And so you can say Du Bois loved the sorrow songs, but Du Bois didn't have a lot, uh, didn't have much time for all that screaming and hollering and stuff because that's them Negroes who go to church. You understand? And you can have as many professors as you want, even some who are licensed ministers to try to explain the black church to white folk, but them is the same Negroes that don't preach at black churches much. You see, that's why you got to emphasize the music a lot, because, you know, you're talking about the masses of people and it's very important that when we think about the black church, we have to think more expansively about spirituality. Let me, let me finish with the Jeremiah Wright piece. So Jeremiah Wright says when that first wave of Africans who began to Africanize Christianity, because what Mike Gomez does a great job about, for example, he says, you go to South Carolina, you look at them Igbo people and their children who they ch keep trying to Christianize, they not Christians. And then until they realize they can take whatever you're preaching and pull it into their worldview. They're not going to your worldview, they're pulling it to their world sense, their world making power, their way of knowing, to use the categories I'm gonna talk about again in a minute, ways of knowing. Meaning what? They say, hold up, the, the cat you believe in died and came back to life, that ain't no thing. We know everything that is, it always existed. We can we can go to get down with that. But you gotta be baptized. Oh yeah, we do water rituals all the time. Congo people, Igbo people, yeah, we, we, we can do that. Yeah, all right, very good. And, uh, and so they just keep doing that. Now what you see these Africans do, as each generation passes, you've got this white nationalist message of oppression permeating the children. So slowly you start getting white Jesus. That's a political act by these Europeans. And so these Africans start looking at Jesus as white because he's got power and, and the cat with the whip got power and the cat who runs the company store got power. So there's a complaint and Santa Claus got power. Whiteness is being, you know, so, so they are confronted with this idea that 
white means power, black means powerlessness, and they trying to use their spiritual space to negotiate the terms of the political existence they find themselves in, the oppression they find themselves in. But what they never abandon is the way of knowing that has them counterpose their existence against this oppressor's existence. Because what they also do is take that Old Testament, and this is one of the great things that really, this is one of the great tragedies of our miseducation. It breaks my heart, even as I understand it, having been born and raised in the church. They turn the ancient Egyptians into the slave masters. It's, it's understandable because the Exodus narrative becomes the heart of how they encounter Christianity. So you look at black people, black people rock with the New Testament for salvation purposes. And parenthetically, I should drop this in. Paget Henry did a very good article in this in a, in, a, in a book edited by Lewis Gordon many years ago called Existence in Black. Paget Henry is an Afro-Caribbean philosopher. And he talks about the fact that Africans came here not believing in this idea of eternal damnation and, and non-existence in the way that we think about it in the Christian world, the white Christian world. Catholicism, which is European Christianity, and, and then his child, Protestantism, right? Henry, his 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 opinion is, and I and I kind of this resonates with me for any number of reasons. You see, once you got somebody in an existential crisis, in other words, you're killing black people, and then you you make them realize that the power of physical life and death is in you. And then you've got their children and their children's children, their children's children, and you introduce them Christianity. You know, the idea then that you would adopt Christianity as a different, as a shifting worldview, the idea somehow that I cannot exist. Okay, so in your worldview, there's heaven, there's hell. If I don't say, Mother, may I in this way, I'm going to hell. So therefore, what must I do to be saved? But that's the adoption of a worldview that is fractured from the way the Africans looked at it. And arguably, that African, that set of African worldviews that blend themselves into blackness, because what Gomez says in this book is they go from being Igbo and Ibibio and House and Fulani and all these different groups and, you know, Wolof and all them. They blend in and become black here. It's the making of blackness. That's why he calls it exchanging our country marks. When we come of age, we do our marks like this. When you come of age, you do your marks like this. Now we over here, we either dropping all the marks or we all going to mix the marks and exchange our marks and become black. Part of becoming blackness as they come into this way of knowing we call Christianity means adopting that Christian worldview. But there's an African set of sensibilities underneath it. So when you go into church to this day, some of y'all been in church. This is one of them joints that came out in the 70s and 80s in part three of the documentary that he didn't even mention this one. Uh, at least I didn't see it. I'm gonna go back and go through in detail. But uh, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. If heaven is not my home then lord what should i do what will i do he's in other words there's still this sense that you ain't in control devil see don't jump on jeremiah right barack if you don't believe what jeremiah right preached that's because you're a stranger from the black church not from jeremiah right you ain't gonna flip the script unless of course you are trying to convince white folks who have a little fear and mystery about the black church that you're okay amazing nah bruh because see the muslims beat the Christians here because they were Muslims. They had been uh, they had been invaded and, and co-mingled with the Muslims, with the Arabs for centuries. And the Arabs had a slave trade off the East Coast of Africa and across the Sahara, the Trans-Sahara trade in Africans. And they had been in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula for 700 years. We're going to come to a lot of this in a second. We'll tie it to Stevie Wonder and some of that. But um, Gomez goes through the idea, for example, now any of y'all been in the church when they taking up collection 
and we used to they used to sing an old song Cain Avenue Baptist Church. Many of y'all know it's called Oh Lord Have Mercy on Me. Oh Lord Have Mercy. Oh Lord Have Mercy on Me. And then there's the, the line When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, oh Lord have mercy on me it's a christian song yeah you know who falls on their knees with their face to the rising sun every morning for the first prayer of the salat first salat the muslims that's how the muslims hid islam up under christianity in places like south carolina henry gates stop playing with black people because see the idea the ideological framework is about making us palatable to America. But that ain't going to happen without our consent. And last I've seen, there has not been a case made in this settler colony for us to consent to anything other than continue to fight it. And if we can't win, we should get the hell out of the game like Stephen Morris is going to do. So look who's in the stands. We ain't got to the stands yet. First iteration that African spiritual tradition is coming together. Second iteration, second leg in the relay, the exchanging of country marks. Okay, the third, now we got institutionalized religion. That's Richard and Sarah Allen escaping out of enslavement in Delaware, coming to Philly, the AME Church. That's the denominations that Henry Gates is talking about. And there are a lot of denominations, right? I mean, in the book, Henry Gates talks about several denominations. And um, let me see if I wrote it down because, you know, I try to keep that stuff as far away from yeah, I mean, you got to keep, I mean, but at any rate, yeah, you got the, uh, the Methodist, the Bas the Baptist and the Protestants, right? You got the AME, the AME Zion church to come out of New York. That's uh Varick and them cats, right? That's Harry Tubman's church. You got the CME used to be the colored Methodist Episcopals. They were founded in the South. That's uh lane college Bishop. I'm not lane college is Isaiah lane, Bishop Isaiah lane. They call them now they're Christian Methodist St. Louis. They big. Now I don't know if they talked about all this again. I got to go through some of this and so I can see it in detail. And then of course the Kojic. We're going to tie that to Stevie Wonder, too, now that I'm thinking about it. Jeremiah Wright says, that's the third leg. That's the slow leg. That's my leg. Meaning what? He says, this is what happened to the black church. In the third leg, the black church fractured. AMEs, Baptist. In other words, he now looks at the denominations as the fracturing of this spiritual force. Not the creation of black institutions. I think the you done told the whole history of the black church through the institutions and then you ease the masses in intermittently to keep the authenticity going. But this is essentially a narrative about the formation of the institutional black church when the vast majority of our people were not Christians up until the Civil War, according to the best scholars. And after that, even as we come in, we bring in Africa with us. So you but I'm sure that can't be you can't be mentioned because you got to start at the end, which is why they framed it at the beginning. And then, of course, Reverend Dr. Wright says, but we made it and that's where we are now the anchor leg and that's when he you know a good preacher now he's gonna bring it home because no matter because the spirit is there jesus is there he gonna get you where you're going and everybody's screaming he said but look who's in the stands you know who's cheering the relay on the ancestors john and eula cleveland in the stands ida b wells in the stands then mark Vesey is in look who's in the stands in other words if you think we're gonna jesus ain't even in the stands jesus running the relay your ancestors are in the stands. And I ain't here one time. Now I got to go back and look minute for minute. I ain't here one time the evocation of the ancestors' ancestors, who are the vast majority of our ancestors. You started this damn documentary like you start everything on the boat. No, you didn't even start on the boat. You started on the shore with the. And then slavery, it let us survive during slave. What about those people's ancestors? You can't bring them in because that's going to blow your game, you see. 
it's gonna blow your damn game. <laughs> anyway, go, go. No, it's like that piece Michael Harriet did uh, about the the black people that took over the plantation, but also that that piece about the um, the black people that committed suicide off the island of, of South Carolina or Georgia, and they and people thought they could fly. That's right. Virginia Hamilton's children's book, The People Who Thought They Could Fly, and those Ebo people. He, he, he Mike Gomez yeah. writes about that in the chapter on the Ebo. That's right. Again, this is this is a, a a an exercise in us challenging everything and learning ourselves. This is not about criticizing right. Christianity or anything. No. Engage to the documentary. This is a point of entry for us to hold this up to the light. That's right. And then to examine for ourselves what do we believe? How do we see ourselves in the midst of the things that are being put out about us? Because this is about us. It's the black church. So I'm black. All right. I've gone to church. I've been baptized a couple of times. Uh, what? How, how does it free us? And then how should right. we be viewing this? And then the next one and the next one. And it's also for me, Dr. Carr, accountability. As just as you are, you know, right. setting frame, you know, again, it's not about criticizing Barack Obama or anyone else. No. It is accountability. If you are ordained by either the media or <laughs> right. others to, to, Represent us to mm. represent us. Hmm. Well, well, we're not doing it. Well, Professor Hunter, I would say this: there are people who say we shouldn't be thinking about representation. Mm. Okay. I was reading uh, the Time Magazine article, uh, the Time Magazine with Amanda Gorman on the cover. Uh, Ibram Kendi wrote this article called "The New Black Renaissance," and he's saying, you know, we are now free from. He said, I don't want to be burdened by race in the sense that I don't want to be burdened by the politics of respectability. I don't want to be burdened by white people. I want to say what I want. And I don't want to be burdened by black people. I want to go where I think and feel and what I'm creating. And I'm saying, bro, that's a great world. What you just said, I stand touching you because we are brothers, but our touching is back to back. Why? <laughs> because it's all about representation. And it's certainly not about what white people think. It's about how we think, which is why I want to actually, this is good, Karen. I want to make this point. And, and yeah, I ain't got no smoke for Barack Obama because I know who Barack Obama is. He's an elected official. See, people be pick, voting for people like they somehow like, like you voting for the Black Panther or some shit. And, and, and also it's, it's an exercise of not putting people on a pedestal just because they're cool. We like them. They got swag. They, right. they make you feel the way. This Come is, on. We got to stop putting people on pedestals who, you know, as you said, that's an elected official who has a particular agenda. No question. And, 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 but see, we can't. That's why some people say we 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 never left the inauguration. <laughs> it's like no, you can't look at this. And I want to talk about this in the context of our curriculum framework. It's very important because this is really why we developed that so we can ask better questions. But 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 in terms of what you're raising, I think it's important. In fact, let's let's introduce our brother uh, Stevie Wonder here for a minute. Um, you're right. This isn't a critique of Henry Louis Gates. Now there, and I have friends and colleagues who say, you know, we have to engage in principle critique. We have, and I agree, there has to be a lot of robust debate, disagreement, coming to consensus. But that's assuming we all want the same things. Now, Henry Louis Gates is black. Most of the people who were in that documentary were black. That is a social reality, not a biological reality. You know, it's a social reality. It isn't a cultural reality either in the sense that we all have a similar cultural orientation. And that's fine. It's like any other group. And I'm, I'm asking this question because, you know, Coca-Cola is, is, was on the 
the list of things that I want to talk about in order of things. So in your mind, Stevie comes first and then we talk about erasing whiteness. How are you feeling? We can make it work either way. Because, you know, as you're talking about race and culture, yes. you know, Coca-Cola went to its employees and apparently had, uh, you know, a, a, a training session where they had slides and they asked, uh, gave instructions to their employees on how to, quote, be less white. Yes. Be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble. Listen, believe, break with apathy, break with white solidarity. And people lost their minds. I ain't have a problem with it. (laughs) And I think, you know, as we're having this conversation, you know, at the crux of it, there are people who are offended by the notion that a, a major conglomerate you know, like Coca-Cola would have a training session where it would train its workers to be less white. <laughs> and why would they do that, Professor? Honey? Because you know, being everything you know, else, you a shrewd businesswoman. Well, why I mean, would they do that? Because because the world is more black. How about that? And your where the money reside, where the money reside, where the money reside. Hold on now. In, uh, future politically. And and financially, and financially has always been that's the best kept secret. You you don't have a world without black dollars, whether it's in our black bodies or in our consumerism and our sp- so they have to to get us here so that we're spending that money there, right? And I'm yes. listening. It's capitalism at its best. I'm not yes. mad at it. No, it is what it is. So, uh, but I I, I I was shocked that they did it openly. <laughs> Well, I did they though? Because it looked like the the, the, the oh, was that's like, right. They were surreptitious. They didn't mean that to get out. That's right. That's and right. we also are assuming that that's authentic because they haven't made a statement yet, have they? No, they have not. Okay, so I mean, and I'm looking at you well, know, it could be it could be uh, one of them uh, catfishing. Uh, exactly. Or okay. I'm, looking right. at, I'm looking at folks. I'm looking at the folks who are showing some of the most outrage, including you know. Like uh, uh, Cornel no, West would say, our, please do not mention the okay, name. Okay, Cornel West would say that's that's our sister, and I would say she black. But I don't put blackness as a political category. You capitalize the being black for that. She black as a sociological sense. But yeah, I'm saying who's pushing this, and I'm saying was mm. that up? You know what I'm saying? But even if it wasn't, right? It, but it if, is, go ahead. If it's a setup, though, because I think you're raising a very important part. Because um, you know, it's it's fodder right now. It's trending. Yes. It's big. Hmm. Yeah, but, but this, okay. no, but this is how they sw- shift the narrative. You know, no this path of things changing, right? Things are changing. That that book you held up with Adam Clayton Powell Senior. Ask, you know, we're going to have to make a compromise. There's no, there's not going to be a, a country, an right. America, or a world without that, right? right? Without that acknowledgement, the notion of whiteness is made up. And as we start to look at Black History Month, 1776 Project, and all of these things kind of like bubbling up, people putting money into making this history all year round, there is something that is changing. It has changed. It has changed forever. Right. So what do we do with that? The notion of whiteness. When I brought up Adam Clayton Powell's dad, probably passing for Black because it was financially and politically more expedient for him to do that than to be a mediocre poor white man in America. The value of whiteness has diminished, right? Because it doesn't really exist. So now you have to bolster people up, which is what we saw with uh, the insurrection, which we saw with with Trump. What we're seeing, you know, with the next person that comes, you know, and even 
uh, that woman that we're not going to mention on these airwaves and others, right? They're cashing in on this thing that is diminishing, but they want to hold on to it. And then they want to reinvigorate it the way they brought the Irish in, the way they brought the Italians in. They have to create the space for their, their, them to expand this power structure, That's right? right? So we can demonize a Coke for getting rid of whiteness or telling mm-hmm. them not to be, you know, and you look at the, the, the thing is very reasonable, right? Be less arrogant, listen more. You know, reasonable to us. What? I'm sorry. Reasonable to, reasonable to us. Okay. But not reasonable to people for whom they look at that as George Lipsitz and um, David Rodiger and so many others writing in whiteness studies and the blacks who wrote about before. They look at that as a positive investment. In other words, I don't have any money in the bank. I'm sick. I lost my job. But as James Baldwin would say, I am not, thank heaven, you. So the things that that are being critiqued in that Coca-Cola adjacent thing are the things that people say, shit, this is all I got. I'm white, which means I get to be arrogant. I don't have to be humble. I ain't got to listen to you. I'm certain about my identity. I'm defensive of that identity. It's born out of ignorance and I get to oppress you. If for no other reason than I get to stand and go any and shop and do it. Hell, I can even tear up the damn United States uh, Capitol Dome. And when they arrest me and put me in jail, I can say I don't eat food. that's not organic and they can move me. In other words, I, I'm white. That's all I got. <laughs> so there. T- and so for us, it's, it's completely reasonable because we're looking at it through the lens of human beings. But as uh, Noel Ignatiev, they, they edited a journal that came out of New England uh, many years ago called Race Trader. And the, 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 the banner underneath the, the title was Treason to Whiteness is Loyalty to Humanity. Wow. In other words, you know, we're not even saying this is, this is black people saying, no, it's human beings. You want an elevated nation, no, nature, notion of humanity. And uh, Raphael, uh, another man who is passing for white, Raphael Edward Cruz, you know, Heidi says to you, we should get away. And you have to do what she says. Why? Because you let them back up a whole truck over her back over the last five years. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the bottom line. So you grab your kids and go. Why? Because you are a white man. Then, you know, I mean, you know, you're Ted Cruz. You're not Raphael Cruz. His daddy's from Cuba. You know what I'm saying? Another man who you let this man drive a whole truck over his back. Apparently your daddy killed Kennedy. But but as a white man, you can leave while people's pipes busting. And of course, we both saw you commented on those lights in downtown Dallas. Come on. That's what they, they and, and the crazy thing about it is people in the dark on the other side aren't just black and brown. They're majority black and brown, but they're poor whites, too. So as they sit in freezing, they say, well, shit, at least I'm white. And that's the trick that those white elites keep appealing to. And in this case, I mean, I hate to say this, you know, people say well, Democrats and Republicans are the same party. They are the same in this regard. They are beholden to their funders. We see Joe Manchin showing his behind in West Virginia. They are beholden to donors, lobbyists. However, the donors and lobbyists don't have enough votes to elect them. So in order to get in the position to do what their donors and lobbyists want, the GOP has decided they're just going to go all in with the white nationalists because the white nationalists got to vote for them. So they got to keep ginning it up. They ain't going to, they're not, there's going to be no compromise. There ain't going to be no, on the Democrat side, you know, if it looks like their policies are different, it's because they have to have an electorate 
that looks different than them white nationalists. And so, and they kind of got caught up because they were the white nationalist party up until the 60s. And then when they flipped it, now they got to get people to vote for them. So the blacks, the browns, the yellows, the reds, everybody got to be in there. And in order to get them to vote, you can't just, you know, so when the energy company comes into the Democrats, we got, no, I can't do that because they ain't going to vote for me. So Joe Biden is another politician. I don't believe in, I'm not going to push the $15 now. Hey, bro, mummy, mummy, we're going to break you. In other words, you don't break him by trying to appeal to his morals. You know what I'm saying? You break him by understanding that that's why you vote. That's why you stay engaged. That's why voting is just one thing. That's why you leave the inauguration. Don't stay at the inauguration with Amanda Gorman or Barack Obama. But now we go to war with you. We understand that you met with us and then, but every day you take a call from the energy company, from the insurance company, from the big banks. We know how this works. We're not stupid. So the parties are the same in terms of the interests that are pushing them, but their electoral base is different because they can't just yet move into that. But that's why even when the black church, when you talk about the black church, even in the documentary, you see the Adam Clayton Powell, you see the movement into that. And you, what you don't see, however, at least I didn't see it again. I'm going to go through it. I'm going to grip my teeth. It'll probably be one day this week or middle of the night. I don't know. I'm looking for how to understand the political dimension. Like, for example, and I assume this would be around hour two because I was kind of going a little bit slower to see if I could catch. Uh, Henry Manil Turner was mentioned. Right, the great Henry Turner. Henry Turner, of course, was elected to the Georgia State, State Legislature um, shortly after Reconstruction. And he was elected uh, and they denied him his seat long before Julian Bond. We mentioned a lot of those black folk who were in the organized church in the 1870s, 80s, 90s, which includes Martin Luther King's grandfather, A.D. King, who was with Henry Mill Turner when they started the Georgia Equal Rights League. They were using the church as a political tool. And that is how the church has been. That's why in Georgia, they introduced this legislation to stop people going for early voting the Sunday before Election Day, the souls to the polls. In other words, you know, these these white boys know what it is. And so the black church has always been politically engaged. In fact, that's why there is a progressive National Baptist Church, because they put Martin Luther King in them out. We talked about that in the previous piece. But I don't want to get too far afield because. Right. And, the, and even yeah, and even in the documentary, uh, they show, um, which is interesting because a, a lot of the anti-vote people, they always kind of, you know, uh, cling to M Malcolm X, who said we should register to vote. Right. Vote. You know, I mean, like this with Adam Clayton Powell. That's very strategy. You know, it's all strategy and we get emotional and we get caught up. The only reason why I brought up that that white thing is because I think that that's going to be the point, the line in the sand that we won't be able to uh, overcome if we allow them to take the narrative and run with it. Right. You know? So getting back to Stevie Wonder, who has made well, 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 before, before we leave Coca-Cola, we should say this about Coca-Cola because you said it. But I want to make sure everybody is if y'all caught what Professor Hunter is, is lapping out here. That that white lash, so to speak, is the natural reaction to anti-racist work. There is a place for anti-racist work. And I'm not saying there isn't. I'm not. That's not my work. I mean, if I have to be in them conversations, I am. I've been in them. But that's not the center of my work, because like you say, Professor Hunter, we're trying to pour cleaner glasses of water. How do how, how does anti, how do anti-racism free us? It free us by helping people to leave us alone. Can we let me just mention this very quick because we know HR 40. They had the uh, hearing on the Hill last week. Please. And, uh, you know, that that night, uh, along with uh, uh, Sister Jam and Brother uh, Kim Howard and uh, a lot of other people, um, my uh, dear friend Ron Daniels, of course, and the uh, NARC, National American Reparations Coalition, um, 
um, a number of other people, uh, Sister Kenneth and, uh, and, and, and Kichi Taifa, we had a debrief on the HR 40. And of course, the ADOS folk were like, oh, the ADOS, everybody calm down. HR 40, and if you remember, they had uh, several blacks uh, testify against it. Uh, Larry Elder, who now with the death of Rush Limbaugh, hopefully is looking for some more checks. Um, uh, I, I, I won't even pause. Nope. Kind of, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, anyway, um, uh, Herschel Walker. And I, and, I, and I said something during the, the round table we had. I appreciated Herschel Walker's comments because Herschel Walker was basically giving a living testimony to the need for a better education system. And whether whether he meant to or not, and even when he said, like, I listened to my mother, my grandmother, how you gonna pay for this man that got lynched? How you gonna pay for this man that got killed and hung? And I'm saying, see, Herschel, you think you are uh, testifying against H.R. 40, but you are making the exact point. You are a victim of deep miseducation, and there is no, as Gil Scott Heron once sang, who pay reparations on my soul? In other words, that is on us. See, people mistake reparations with... In order to get reparations, you have to make a demand, but you're not making a demand to have your humanity restored. That's what that's another thing in terms of this documentary on the black church. You have to understand we came here as humans and we never stopped being humans. When you label us slaves, when you label us, you are you are going from somebody else's perspective. And then um, I, I'll mention one other thing. Uh, Benny Thompson, Congressman Thompson, has filed a lawsuit and OCP has joined. Uh, and, I, and I read the case. I read the, the filing, the complaint, Thompson versus Trump and Al. They're using the Civil Rights Act of 1860. No, 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 They're using the Ku Klux Klan Act, the so-called Third Enforcement Bill, which is the Act of 1871, uh, which is the act that has been eviscerated over the years as uh, the courts have basically said you have to engage in state action. They're filing what is called a 1985 claim, a civil rights claim, a civil law claim. They're saying that Trump and the other named defendants, which include the Proud Boys and them, they uh, interfered with the uh, they had a civil conspiracy to interfere with the operation of elected officials federal elected officials that is what they call the ku klux klan act it came into existence in 1871 as one of the reconstruction bills and i thought it was fascinating because the previous year 1870 hiram rebels had come to the united states senate the first black senator and he came out of mississippi it's interesting. So Benny Thompson out of Mississippi. I just thought, man, that's fascinating. But by that time, North Carolina was already loosened the Klan to stop black people from voting. And in fact, the North, the governor of North Carolina sent the state militia to stop the Klan because they were intimidating voters in a couple of counties. And then the following year, when they passed the Act of 1871, that's when the Democrats, who were the party of white nationalism at the time, overwhelmed the governor's race in North Carolina and voted in a Democrat and they started turning to a white supremacy. By the time you get to the Third Enforcement Act in 1871, the so-called Ku Klux Klan Act, the federal government passes that to stop the damn Klan. And I'm saying that Benny Thompson last week digs into the crates because it's still good law and says, basically, he doesn't go to racial route because that's the other part of, of, of the Klan Act, the Enforcement Bill of 1871. By the way, the same year that uh, uh, that um, Senator Rebels came to uh, from Mississippi to the United States uh, Capitol as a U.S. senator, black senator, that was the same year that Ulysses S. Grant and the federal government started something called the Department of Justice. If you paid attention to Mary Garland when they nominated him, he mentioned that. And part of the reason they started the Department of Justice was to go against the Klan. 
And so 1871, the Klan Act, there are several sections of it. One of, one of them is, and they have civil law equivalents. It's U.S. Code uh, 1983, 4 and 5. No, 1984, 5 and 6, 4, 5 and 6. The, um, the criminal thing is to prosecute conspiracies. That's the law. That's the law they went into court against uh, the killers of Schwerner, Goodman, and Cheney, so-called Mississippi burning case. The civil component is to sue people and in, in civil court, and there's a provision that says if you interfere with the government, elected officials, and doing their work, you can be brought up on this charge. That's what Thompson used. But I'm saying I have to say this. I think the most important period in American history is the period of Civil War Reconstruction, including the 1960s, including everything that's happened since. Why? Because that's the moment when this country betrays the possibility that leaves Adam Clayton Powell Sr. saying we got to all give up something. But what black people gave up in that moment was the prospect of ownership of land. This is at the same time that they are dispossessing the Native Americans of the land as they go west. Pause. Come back to the Black Church documentary for 15 seconds. This is why every time somebody at the beginning, middle, or end of that documentary refers to slavery as America's original sin, you are framing this completely wrong. The original sin is settler colonialism. These Native Americans, who, by the way, are freezing on these reservations and other places down there in, in Texas and Louisiana, the Native Americans were set upon first. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. Every time you say America, the original, I get it if we just kind of people who are beginning to learn, I want to know more. But when you are talking head in a documentary that has been curated and then interviewed and then edited down to make a certain point, that was a deliberate decision. And that's a deliberate decision that is really about trying to integrate black people into the American project by saying we can cure this original sin. But here's the problem. You can't cure the original sin of settler colonialism. So you just act like it never happened. We'll start from here. But what about the ninny? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into some rights. I mean, we. but what you're really saying, what the unspoken thing is, the unspoken thing is mighty whitey, once he set his foot on this country, it was inevitable. He's better than us. He's a conqueror. He had guns. He had better religion. His culture is better. And so therefore, he kind of had a natural right. Y'all better check out John Locke and natural law. And he had a natural right, terra nullis. You know, it was nobody here thinking about property rights and stuff. He brought a better system, the enlightenment, renaissance, all that shit to teach your children and then send them an AP class and teach them again. And then you go write a dissertation on it. And then you get on TV and talk about uh, slavery is America's original sin because you're taking as your framework, not your people coming from Africa, not the human beings who are over here minding their business, but you're taking your, as your framework, the beginning of the project started by the people who set off the problem in the first place. The field of violence becomes your point of departure. That's why when you come in, it's like watching WandaVision. You, you know what you're talking about? America is inside the hex. And you can't, America trying to keep you, those people outside the hex from coming inside the hex. Because once you come inside the hex, you become whatever was run, whoever's running the hex, you become what they need you to be. If you were a human being outside the hex, you come through the hex, you a clown. <laughs> you got to come in this narrative the way we need you. Here those gates exist inside the hex. The narratives exist inside the hex. Our job is to dismantle the hex. Why? Because we live in this country, and, and but we live in the world. And so Steve Lynn Morris from Saginaw, Michigan. And I thought about this. Uh, I thought about this. Man. Mm -mm -mm. Steve Lynn Morris, who's, uh, who had a run. In fact, I, I, I pulled a little book. There's so many books on Stevie Wonder by... Uh, about Stevie Wonder and little Stevie Wonder, but I thought I had the book somewhere near. If I don't, if I can't put my hand on it immediately, I'll just have to 
cited and keep going on. Oh, that's too bad. I, it's a little book. That's probably what happened. I probably put it some. Oh, here we go. Here's a series that Continuum Press did. They put out, there are a bunch of them now. This is number 42 in the series, but now there are a lot more than that. And I'm not vouching for the author on everything, but it's a nice little compendium. It's a cheap, cheap book too. It's only like 150 pages. They take a different song or album and music, and then they read social history through it. This is uh, Zeph Lundy's Songs in the Key of Life on Stevie mm -hmm. Wonder. Now, if you know the history of Stevie Wonder, you know that Wonder, loyal as hell to Motown. Shit, he stuck Barry Gordy up, Stevie Wonder. Because by then, you know, you tell everybody didn't sign somewhere else. The Supremes getting ready to leave. The Miracles getting ready to leave. Stevie Wonder stays with Motown. Stevie, but, but to stay with Motown in the 70s and 80s, Stevie Wonder told Barry Gordy, look, bro, that's what I'm going to need. Uh, I'm going to need, like, he signs a seven-year contract. I'm sorry. He signs a 15-year contract to do, like, seven albums, and he gets 20% of the sales, unheard of, in recording industry, and he got veto power if Gordy tries to sell Motown. <laughs> I mean, Steve, what it comes to say, man? Look, now, if you remember now, that run, that run we're talking about, like 71, Marvin Gaye does what's going on. Now they turn to the social commentary. Stevie Wonder in 1972, Music of My Mind and Talking Book. Stevie Wonder in 1973, Inner Visions. Stevie Wonder in 1974, fulfilling this first finale. Finale, and he says, "I'm gonna got another album," and then he misses a year. He's putting out an album just about every nine months. People like, damn, wonder where's the music? Where's the music? And then '76, boom, songs in the key of life. So I wish Master Blast. Oh my God, he's putting it down. But here's the thing, and I'm gonna come to what Stevie told Oprah a minute ago. Talk about the black church. I would have liked seeing Stevie Wonder in the black church documentary. I mean, here's the thing. You know, those, those old quartets, the Golden Gate Quartet. I'm thinking about the Dixie Hummingbirds. I remember I gave a commencement speech at a high school, uh, Highland Park High School in Detroit, Michigan. We were there for Howard University's alternative spring break. You know, a lot of these HBCUs, they use their, their spring break. They go do service. And so I'll never forget. I rode out there. No, actually, I flew that time. We slept in the church. I'm, I'm kind of, I'm too old to be sleeping on church benches and stuff. So they gave me the pastor study, which is a little room. It was very nice. Uh, you know, I slept on the couch. <laughs> I appreciate y'all letting the old man, because they sleeping on the benches. I love those students, my God. Um, I had to. I went out there a couple of times. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'll turn to spring break. So we out there, and uh, I'm thinking about how we do this service. And so we are over at Highland Park High School for the week. And so since I'm with them, they said, well, Dr. Carr, you know, would you teach a kind of mini black history class out here? And I felt kind of funny because Highland Park is the home of my good friend, Paul Lee, who is one of the great scholars on Malcolm X, one of the incredible, most incredible researchers. And I, I said, Paul, I know Paul, this Paul neighborhood. Yeah, Highland Park, y'all in Detroit, y'all know what I'm talking about. Uh, so it's no longer there. They closed it down. Damn shame. Threw the library away, too. Paul talks about that. Crazy. So I said, okay. I, and the teacher who they who asked me, you know, well, I said, sure. I said, I, I tell you what, let's team it. Because I ain't never coming in another teacher's classroom like I'm taking over. class. No, come on, let's let's work together. And we had a man, we had a great at the end of that week. The principal asked me, would you come back for our graduation and speak? I said, oh, my God, I will be honored. I will be so honored to do that. And so I came back and I'll never forget the, the little talk I gave began with Stevie Wonder. Because Stevie Wonder's road manager was named Ira Tucker Jr. Ira Tucker Jr., uh, who was his manager during the time he was in this run, 
Ira Tucker Jr. was in the car when um, Stevie Wonder was on was out promoting the Inner Visions album in 1973. And in August 1973, Stevie Wonder got in that terrible car accident mm-hmm. in a coma for four days. Remember that everybody, oh my God, is he gonna live? Is gonna Ira Tucker uh, Jr. was by his bedside and he said, I knew Stevie was gonna make it. We didn't know he was in a coma. He wasn't responsive, he just laying there. He said, I brought his keyboard to the side of the bed and I got down in his ear and I started singing. Teachers keep on teaching. <laughs> I'm so glad that he let it try it again. Cause the last night on earth I lived a hobble of sin. I'm so glad that I know more than I knew then. And I'll keep on trying till I reach the higher ground. Dun, dun, dun. And he said he saw Stevie Wonder's fingers start moving like he was playing the key he said, this man's gonna make it now why I, and i so so i started talking i started the, the the little talk i gave at highland park graduation with that story and i said that's the first part of the story the second part of the story just happened in philadelphia a group that was formed in mike harriet's home state it seemed like it all coming back to south carolina greenville south carolina 1942 the dixie hummingbirds the black church skip what you know about the black, what you know about the, the the dixie hummingbirds moved to philadelphia 1928 they were formed 1942 they moved to philadelphia which is where they are still based just celebrated their 90th anniversary a couple of years ago ira tucker jr is one of these singers because his father passed in 2008 his father was ira tucker senior um those of you who may, y'all, some of y'all know the Dixie Hummingbirds. If you ever want to see something, watch the Dixie Hummingbirds with Paul Simon, because some people don't know the Dixie Hummingbirds except through Paul Simon. They recorded a song that the Hummingbirds recorded called Loves Me Like a Rock. If you want to see something, go on YouTube, watch the Dixie Hummingbirds with Paul Simon, and guess who playing the keyboard? Stevie Wonder, and they do Loves Me Like a Rock. Why am I mentioning this in terms of the Black Church and Stevie Wonder? Let me tie all that together right quick. I love Loves Me Like a Rock. Y'all know that song. Because Ira Tucker Sr., the lead singer of the Dixie Hummingbirds. Oh, do y'all know them song called Loves Me Like a Rock? This is the black church I know. These them quartets like Sam Cooke and them came out of. And yeah, they're going to have in the documentary. I see you got oh, these are all the singers that came out of the black church. Rosetta Thorpe, brilliant. Great footage, by the way. All of that. But the Hummingbirds and them, See, you understand the difference between in our curriculum framework, the social structure and the governance structure. Who are black people to each other? They're looking at Christianity as a political weapon, too. They're working out their soul salvation, this whole thing that you can't exist. They want to know what to be saved, but they don't trust these white folk. They never did. And if you listen to the lyrics and understand, you know what they're talking about. So when Ira Tucker sings, when I was a little boy, the devil called my name. I said, who do? Who do you think you're fooling? <laughs> I'm a consecrated boy. <laughs> yes, he did. He said, my mama loved me. She loved me. She get down on her knees and hug me. Lord, she loves me like a rock. My mama loves me. The devil tried to take me off this course, but my mama loves me. And then she became an ancestor. Look who's in the stands. My mama loves, but then, oh my goodness. So 
Ira Tucker sings the first verse of Loves Me Like a Rock when they let Paul Simon on uh, the stage to sing with him. Because, you know, Paul Simon, I love Paul Simon as a lyricist, writer. Yeah, but you're still a white man and you would have made them famous. Now they're finally famous. They always been famous in the governance structure. This is a social structure conversation. So they let Paul take the middle verse. He sings and it's great. Whatever. Then Stevie comes around. And that's my favorite verse, the third verse of Loves Me Like a Rock. Because uh, that, that, that line go, if I was the president, oh, and the Congress called my name. <laughs> what do you say? I say, who do, who, who do you think you're fooling? <laughs> he said, I got the presidential seal. <laughs> he said, I'm up on the presidential podium. My mama loves me. She loves me. <laughs> Get down on her knees and hug me. Lord, she loves me like a rock. You can't make no damn documentary on the black church and not and co-mingle the black church with the idea of America. Did you hear the man say, if I was the president Come on. and the Congress called my name? Who do? And then they all, who, who do you think you're fooling? Get out of here, Skip, and take every one of them damn commentators with you. I don't care how much money PBS gives you, BBC gives you. You can walk up in your church and hug everybody. But, bruh, my brother, beloved brother, if I was the president and the Congress called my name, I would say, who do you think you're fooling? Anyway, Ira Tucker Sr., who sings that song, passed away in 2008. You know, I told them people in Detroit. I saw my here with y'all. Guess who came to his funeral to sing? Because his son had brought him back from the doorstep of death. Stevie Wonder came to that funeral. My man Nate Thompson was there. It was in Philly, right on Broad Street. And I wish I could have been there. But Nate telling me that story, man, just brings tears to my eyes. He said, Stevie Wonder got up there. If y'all want to see something else, go on YouTube and catch Stevie Wonder at the Kojic uh, convention singing this song right here. He said, this is the song Stevie Wonder sang at Ira Tucker Senior Spinner. We want to talk about the black church. I've had some good days. What y'all know about that? <laughs> I've had some hills to climb. Y'all know about that Clay Evans if y'all in Chicago. I've had some lonely days and some sleepless nights. But when I look around, Mm. And I think things over all of my good days I outweigh my bad days and I I, I, I won't complain Better not. if you don't understand <laughs> that you can make as many talking head Princeton, Harvard, Howard USC documentaries, white facing, talking about the black church and, and there ain't no one, you don't know nothing about because, see, that came on the boats, bruh. And if you don't go back before the boats, everything you say after is a misdirection play. And so when Stephen Morris talking to Oprah, Oprah, he says to Oprah, yeah, I think I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to, to Ghana. By the way, if you know the history of Stevie Wonder, in fact, even if you read Songs in the Kid Life, this little book, Stevie Wonder been threatening to go to Ghana since the early 70s. He said he was going to retire from, this is like 74. I'm going to retire from music. I'm going to Ghana. 
his ain't go yet. And if you watch him, you ever seen him in concert? Can you seen him? He yeah. come out of African clothes. He got more beads in his hair than Serena and Venus did when they were 16, 17 years old. This man been talking about this. Look at the covers of Talking Book. Look at Inner Visions. Read The Secret Life of Plants. Go through songs in the key of life. You understand. He got songs on the songs of Key of Life. He co-wrote with the great Gary M. Hotep Bird, your colleague in social media, um, in, in, in broadcast uh, media. Gary Bird, man, they got a they got a piece on the um the Stevie Wonder sang on Spike Lee's bamboozle soundtrack called Misrepresented People. In 17, no, he says in 1492, you came upon these shores 700 years educated by the Moors. <laughs> so, you know, Stevie Wonder been very clear about this. He said, We have, he says, we must never be a misrepresented people. Those lyrics are by. Gary M. Hotel Bird. They co-wrote the song Black Man on the Songs in the Kiva Life album. So Stevie Wonder says to Oprah, uh, to Oprah, he's 70 years old now. He said, I'm, I'm leaving. And then she says what she has to say. Oprah, another one, not even 10 minutes into the Black Church documentary, prominently featured. Why? Because you're framing this. This, not, this. this audience is not for Black people. We're trying to get white people to get over there. What was the word again? Fear and mystery. <laughs> no, it's okay. Adam Clayton Powell seen and told y'all, uh-uh, uh-uh, this got to come from conviction. So I don't care how you shoehorn all our culture into a, a kind of, it's okay. It ain't okay, damn it. That's why these kids is in the street. And like the minister told you, they don't walked away from the institution, but they didn't walk away from God. Why? Because you can't fit God in the black church. Even if you try to say, well, I'm talking about religious institution. You ain't saying nothing about the Muslims. You ain't saying nothing about the Yoruba people. These are my people here, Egbe Ijoba in Philadelphia. You ain't you ain't said nothing about them. Why? You brought them in a little bit as earrings and, and bracelets because you knew you couldn't just get away with not talking about them. But Stevie says, she says, why? Oprah says, why? This is a question you would ask if you kind of believe in that framework that the black church tried to build. Why? Why would you leave? I mean, my God, you know, I mean, it's tough, but <laughs> why would you go back to mumbo jumbo, God of the Congo and all the other gods of the Congo? By the way, I didn't just make that up. That was Vachel Lindsay. Vachel Lindsay was a poet who had a poet. He had a poem called The Congo. He said, he said, because he said, here go the Africans in the United States, here go the black people. But then in the Africa, they got mumbo jumbo, God of the Congo. This is the guy that Langston Hughes slipped a few poems to when he was busting dishes here uh, and, and gave them to him. And then Lindsay was like, oh, this young boy got some talent. Yeah, you don't even know who that is, who you're going to put on because he's going to bite to bite you in the Congo out of hell. In fact, he's a young boy. He gonna roll. I've known rivers, ancient dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep like the rivers. I built my hut near the Congo and it lulled me to sleep. You you keep the Congo name out your mouth. But at any rate, Stevie Wonder looks at Oprah with that inner vision. Mm. And he says, I don't want to see my children's children's children have to say, oh, please like me. Please respect me. Please know that I'm important. Please value me. And then Stevie says, what kind of shit is that? And then they <laughs> zap the clip. Because <laughs> like, Oprah ain't got no good answer, Oprah Gale. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? You ain't got no. What kind of shit is that, Stevie? I'm out, baby. And so, <laughs> the last thing I'll say to when we were working on the Philadelphia curriculum, the African States curriculum, our objective was to come up with better questions. If we can get better questions, we can look for better answers, and that's what that's all we're doing. And so, what we said is the first thing we had to do is separate out. Uh, the idea of pleading for our humanity. This is what we did. First thing, we had to work out how to think Africana without thinking one way. 
I agree with Gates on that. There's no one black thing. So we have, how can we have this rich debate conversation back and forth without just saying, because it says Africana worldwide, we somehow all agree on everything. I respect the, the ADOS position on myself. I'm the descendant of enslaved Africans, but I don't cut off all my ancestors before that. And I, th and I understand enough history to understand that anything we're going to get domestically is a direct consequence of the pressure that's put on this hostile government from international pressure. It is Brown versus Board, you name it. All those things have been a result of this country realizing they can't do the things the old way, like Coca-Cola is realizing. Coca-Cola realizes money has got, no, we can't keep this up. Why? Shit, if they ever get together and decide no more Coke, we're out of business. So the government in this country country is, is not that different than that. So that's number one. And we had to work out how to think Africana without, you know, thinking all one way. That's why we came up with this question. Who are Africans to each other in whatever moment we're studying? That's the governance structure question. You always ask that. So if you're making a documentary on the black church, you're less interested in proving your humanity from somebody singing Amazing Grace to make everybody be America's pastor. And such thing is America. Who is this man to us? That's a serious conversation that I say we still haven't had. What is he to us? Who is he to us? Who is the family to us? How do we feel about Jeremiah Wright? All, this stuff, all these things, what are they to us? What about sexism in the black community? What about homophobia in the black community? These are very important things we need to deal with inside. We don't need you in the room. So well, here's what I think. Okay, that's great. We'll be out in a minute. Why? Because see, you come in here. Now we got to deal with you. No, you need to leave because I just need to think. <laughs> I need to think with my people. We're going to argue. We're going to debate. We're going to fall out. We're going to be together. But that's the governance question. And then the second question we had to do, we had to work out how to think Africana without interruption. And that's why we created the social structure category. Who are Africans to other people? It's important to look at these documentaries. It's important to think about these things. But don't think about them. Don't confuse that. What that project is, that PBS, BBC, uh, white-facing project, don't confuse that with who you are. Who you are is another conversation. And sometimes, many times, they intersect. But unless we ever stop and draw a line and say, okay, we'll think this, and, th and we'll think this, and then we'll put them in conversation, we'll always be running around here with that different devil because we've never been clear. And then the governance category then all the other four questions we asked all feed the governance category. And I'll, I won't go through, well, ways of knowing, here's what it is. Henry Louis Gates says in the book, compare your book to the documentary. When I say the black church, I mean, I'm talking about religious institutions. No, but you didn't say black religious institutions because one hour would have been on Africa. The second hour would have been on what happened when we got here, beginning with the Muslims. You wouldn't even have gotten to Christianity until maybe the last 15 minutes of the second hour. The third hour would have been on institutionalization and the political significance of using that. And that's where Cedric Robinson comes in. He says the black movement in the church is what allowed uh, those Africans to organize themselves in terms of politics, because in their worldviews, like everybody's seeing. Everybody know it. In other words, when I was singing, everybody sing. Everybody got to sing. I don't care. You can't carry a tune. We'll, we we had a chord structure where everybody can sing. Even if you all key, you won't key. We're going to make sure. And that means everybody vote. White people are like, well, I don't. No, hell no. Everybody vote. White women, us too. Yeah, you too. But shit, not before me. In other words, so you start seeing the confrontation, right? But ways of knowing, I'll never forget the debates we had. And then I sketched it out, sketched it out, sketched it out. And it finally struck me. Because what we were trying to come up with is a word to talk about the way human beings think about the world. Religion was easy, but everybody in the mosque, everybody in the synagogue, everybody in the church. Philosophy, that was easy. 
but that had a connotation that it's a professional or, or a practice that is systematic and some people are not fly. no 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 uh worldview nah that's kind of loaded we need we need something that people understand as a phrase and then can find themselves in it and that's what you know what ways of knowing so ways of knowing includes all those sensibilities that inform the black church that is what the sister was saying when she says they didn't turn from god yes there's a belief there's a sense that there's something beyond this science technology that was kind of like we got to do that for stem and the folks can kind of get them up off, off our back we'll figure out a way to tie those in because we're always using tools and things uh then movement and memory and cultural meaning making so songs of the key of life come out in 1976 that is music that's made in 76 so that makes it cultural meaning making. Meg the Stallion is on Vogue, whatever. That's cultural meaning making right now. And Naomi Osaka just waxed another white girl. And, uh, you know, I saw what you were saying, Ken. We watching Serena versus Naomi. I mean, we gonna, we assume whoever win this going to win the thing. And then at the damn award thing this morning, I'm up like six, seven o'clock in the morning. I'm looking and the commentator's like, well, you'll be back. You'll win next year. I'm saying, you really going to say that to this white girl while the sister that just beat her like a drum and standing here? I understand. You got to protect your whiteness. No harm, no foul. But you just get that ass waxed again next year. But the point is that um, while all that is going on, the question is, come back in 50 years. In 50 years, you put on thinking back to when I was a little nappy-headed boy. If we start singing that in the Zoom in my class on, on uh, Monday, uh, Tuesday morning at 8 o'clock, all them kids going to start singing. Ain't now one of them over 22 years old. What you know about I wish them days would come back once more. Y'all ain't never been in no penny store buying no candy. You ain't. I've been in a penny store with the tied money, <laughs> making a hard decision between Sunday school and regular service. I've been in it. What y'all know about this? But it's movement and memory, meaning what? As we move through time and space, what parts of what we did in any one moment endure? What mm. parts endure? And I'm watching this documentary, and one of the reasons I've never been able to, nothing Henry Louis Gates has ever done has ever resonated with me in terms of spirit. I've learned a few things here and there. I read all the books. I'm not saying it's not without value, because it is valuable, but it's not valuable in terms of my narrative. I'm trying to pour a clean glass of water, not trying to make sure, you know, I'm in somebody else's dirty glass. But the reason it's not resonating with me is because every five, ten minutes, it's a little joke. It's a little... It's a little, it's a little backhanded slap. He walking around in Africa during African wonders of the African world. He shows up in Ethiopia in a Harvard T-shirt and asks them to show him where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's some disrespectful shit, bro. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he had Timbuktu telling them where the books at, where the books at. And Asa Hilliard told me this story mouth to ear. He said when he went to Timbuktu, he had been there before. He's in Mali. He goes to Timbuktu, and the elders told him, "Yeah, man, Henry Louis Gates was here with a film crew a while back." He asked us to show him the book. So we showed him a few books so he could take his film. He said, let's show you something else. Then he took him in a room and he, he saw some books and they brought in these young children. And Asa was like, who are these young people? He said, this is what we would never show here in Lewis Gates. These are the children who will be the librarians. He said, because in our ritual, when a child is born into a family of librarians, you bring him in the room with a, with a cover over his face after he come out of his mother's womb and then you raise the cover so that the first thing he sees in the world is the thing he will be responsible for. His trainers. I'm telling you, he said, we need to show him that. He, first of all, he came up in here in a Harvard t-shirt talking about showing me the books. At that point, we knew this is not a man who was with us. See, there's a governance structure and there are ways of knowing. Here, Louis Gates, bruh, 
you can come anytime in the governance structure, but don't mistake what we saw last week with the governance structure. That's a social structure documentary. Mm. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm recovering on that note. Oh, and, and speaking of the cogent, cogent, uh, cogent, uh, cogent. Church, uh, you know, I think about Maddie Moss. Uh, yeah. And I, yeah, that wasn't brought in. Maddie Clark, Maddie Moss Clark. Oh, and, oh, oh they didn't, they had a Clark sisters. I don't think so, but I ain't finished. Maybe I missed it. Like I missed a lot of other no, things. No, no, no. You did. But the Stevie Wonder connection, cause that master blaster, doom, 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 that, that is, no um, no, I'm not. I, I'm not even messing with you. You no, no, no. Uh-uh. You can't. That's the thing. You can't mess up a Stevie Wonder song. Yeah, right. That became you brought the sunshine. Oh, right? that became you brought the sunshine. Come on, Karen. They straight. They jacked it. But Stevie, being gracious, like okay, you made okay. that a number one gospel hit, and it did. The Clark Sisters made that happen. But mm. well, I love that tie-in. Mm. Right. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Isn't it? I just, oh man. And you know what? We, we, we're going to end up. I just mentioned this because I know it's in there, but it's one thing to be described by a talking head, by an academic. It's another thing to feel it. So, you know, all those songs, remember the tensions. And I saw that in there with Dorsey and then later on, Next Iteration. When those Africans who came up in the church, Curtis Mayfield, um, came up in the church. Rosetta Thorpe came up in the church like um, Sam Cooke and them. When they then took those lyrics in the other, Marvin Gaye, took those lyrics in the other direction, that creates real tension in the governance structure, but not because people didn't feel those lyrics, but because they did. So, you know, when you, when you hear, um, when you hear, like when you hear Aretha Franklin and James Cleveland sing Precious Memories, mm. you got a problem now, because now you're talking about the 70s, and now you have Marvin Gaye, you don't have Sam Cooke, you send me. And then, so when, when, uh, when, when, um, when, um, when Aretha Franklin says, no, when James Cleveland says, in said hour, every now and then you get a little lonely. Now the people in the church that you talking about Jesus, or you talking about your lover. And then you hear Aretha in the back, you better sing it, James. Mm-hmm. See, see, when you ride that blue note in, it ain't even really the, the words you saying. It's that blue note. So you better be real careful what you put on top of that blue note, because that's coming in here. And then and then and then you know when they go back and forth, and Aretha Franklin is like, sacred secrets will unfold. <laughs> yes, yeah, sacred secrets will unfold. See, now you're playing with natural fire, and, and why you were like. Oh, I love that. No, you don't even, you don't even, you don't even know what this is. If y'all ever been an usher when they put on precious memories, everybody leaving. <laughs> you know, they getting up, they running out. Why? Because Sterling Stuckey writes it in slave culture. That's what they call the ring shout. <laughs> in other words, we're going to keep doing this thing till the spirit comes. And guess what? That ain't Christianity, unless you include Vodun. Isn't that Christianity? Well, they got Catholic saints. Right, right. See, the tie is not from Europe. The tie is from Africa. You talk about the black church? You do that. You get into the drum. In fact, I shouldn't even go down this road, but I will mention this. Remember, uh, Karen, this is our generation. When uh, Debbie Harry decided she's going to dip her toe into hip hop and did Rapture. Yes. If you ever watch the video for Rapture, she's like, yeah. 
And then she's like, you know, you get in your car, you drive real far, you know, all that kind of thing. But then she's standing there with these white dudes, like her little boyfriends going around, like she the Marilyn Monroe or something like that, bringing it into the social structure. And this is the same time Bosquiat is going downtown, Freddie Braitway, Fat by Freddie and them, the museums have gotten interested in them, Henry Chalfont taking pictures, uh, Cooper's taking pictures. Meanwhile, they killing Michael Stewart on the damn subway, they killing the LR bumpers on the okay. subway. You're killing the people, making the culture, but you taking pictures because y'all done figured out how to make here come Blondie with you know rapture, and she sees these white boys around her. Around them are several black women with their hair, head kerchiefs, and dresses white. The ring shout. So y'all take see, see, y'all don't even know what this is. You you wouldn't know it to see it, and you can't trust Henry Louis Gates because he can't explain it to you either because he don't know it. And I know he knows it. Let's be very clear. He's a fine scholar, top rate scholar, because that ain't his job. His job is to make us a little less fearful. Plus, he's getting paid very nicely to do that. But that ain't who we are. So it's not going to impact us. But yeah, nah, you the ring shout would get us going. You ready for questions? Yes, 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 yes. yes. I, I love you. I love you too. Love this you, is baby. beautiful. What are we doing? <laughs> I love you so much. Oh, man. Oh, no. Let's bring Miss Milty in from Denver. Mil oh, Denver. Hi, Milty. Hi, good morning. Uh, first of <laughs> yes, my name is Milty. I'm in Denver currently. Uh, first of all, I just want to say to the both of you, um, thank you so much for this. Uh, I wish I wish that has had happened to me 30 years ago. Mm. I think my life would be very different. I would be very different, but I want to thank you for me it too. now. Wait, me too. <laughs> you know what? You know, let me say this because we, we hear that a lot. Um, yeah. things happen when it's supposed to happen. I don't know if 30 years in that for, uh, ago, people would be ready for that. You know, I don't know if 30 years ago, I, I know I wouldn't have been ready. I wouldn't have been the person that I am. Mm. I don't know if I'm about you. No, ago, you know, things uh, converge when they're supposed to. They show up when they're supposed to. And our job is to take that baton and run that leg of the race once we get it. So I, I appreciate that, Milty, but, you know. That's right. Yeah, well, I just want to say, um, but Anywho, let me keep this short because I know you have other people. No, no, it's all good. Can I ask you before you do you, You're in Denver. You from Denver? No, I hate Denver. <laughs> <laughs> the job got you out there, huh, sis? <laughs> Where you I, from? Not the Caribbean. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, my family on both sides are from northern Mississippi. Really? Uh, yes. Uh, my, my father's from Greenwood. My mother is from a community outside of Lexington, Mississippi called Acona. You and um, they uh, and that they're the reason why I wanted to ask you a question. They were both teachers in the segregated school system in Mississippi. That's how they met. Uh, they taught in the school in Greenwood. Yes. And my father was a science uh, teacher as well as being the athletics coach. My God. And his dream was to he just wanted to be a high school football coach. That's all he wanted to do. But with the coming of integration, he figured out that very early they were not going to let him do that and be over some white boys. You know? So he went back to school and uh, he went to school in Nashville. He went to Meharry. Oh, wow. And he, yeah, he, he studied to be a dentist. Yes. And uh, he's, he passed now in 2014. And, uh, but my mom's still here. She was uh -huh. 90 in September. Oh, that's beautiful. And 
because of this uh, Saturday morning for me, um, I got the idea of doing an oral history with her about teaching in the segregated school system and growing up in that era. Um, she had a very, she had a, I mean, she, she had a wonderful family life. She had a wonderful childhood. Her family owned land, owned a lot of land. So mm. they were pretty much well off for black people in Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to ask you for some advice. My idea was to ask her about what, you know, what was it like teaching there? What were the conditions? What did they have to deal with? Um, how did they go about helping, you know, how did they, how did they do it? You know, because I remember both of, I remember my father when I was in my twenties looking at me once, he didn't talk a lot about it. Uh, neither did my mom. But I remember my father telling me, you know what? Integration was one of the worst things that happened because yeah. you, you have teachers who don't care about black kids. That's right. And it's like, and you, people don't know the teachers, you know, they don't, they don't trust them. And uh, one of his students who had been my landlord in, in Chicago told me, it's like his mother trusted my dad implicitly. My God. You know, mm. uh, and uh, and my father, you know, my parents raised me in a similar way going to integrated schools in Jackson. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. And uh, I went to mostly parochial schools. So I went to the Catholic schools. Sure. And Which I remember a lot of our, our, our people put children in Catholic schools because of the quality of education. It was the quality of the education. It was also the attention. Yes. Um, yes. I, we started out in a, uh, uh, my brother and I both started school going to, uh, the school for the black parish in the, in the, in the, in the city. And those nuns, I mean, they specific, they were all white, but they specifically came to the South to teach black kids. Oh yes. Right? Oh yeah. So, uh, there was a little paternalism going on, Sure. but you know, I'm, I had the best time, you know, I, <laughs> And then you know, they, they, I, they push you toward uh, to fam. I see you with your rattlers on. This is my dad's. My oh, dad is a Yes. Yeah. Strike this and is, strike again. Come on don't now. Don't make me cry. Don't make me cry. Um, wow. My dad played. My dad played football for FAMU. No, he didn't. Forty. Yes, he did. That means your quarterback your dad played for the great Jake Gaither, probably. Yes. Oh, and when my. I was a kid. When I was a kid, we would go to Florida every other year. And my dad would put it like, we're going to go see the tree because Coach Gaither had a tree yes. in his living room. And that's how my dad would put it to us. Uh, we're going to Tallahassee. And uh, uh, for me, I was oblivious about a lot of things, but it was like, we're going to see the tree. And it's like, yes, we're going to go see the tree. And so I remember with that elder. You, you saw them together in conversation. You saw him yes. with his elder. Yes. <laughs> oh my La, God. It, it, it was uh, it was really uh thinking back on it now because I was like, you know, I was a little, little kid. Of course, and, of course, of course. And uh, but thinking back on it now, my father had the relationship with Coach Gaither that his students had with him. Right, right. Oh, you know, and uh your daddy was of, what, what was your father's name? I got it right because I'm sure he's in one of these books. I got it right here. Uh, my father's name is Charles Edward Leonard. Wow, Charles, and Edward. he became a dentist in um, 
he was a dentist in Jackson. Yes. Uh, uh, he had an office for the longest time that was just across the, just behind, as it were, Jackson State University, where I was born. I was born on campus. You are kidding me. No. <laughs> oh my God. No, I'm saying, I'm really, I'm not, that is amazing. Well, it's the, the funny thing, the funny thing about my life is that I'm supposed to be smart. No question. But I ignored so many things growing up. Like all of us, like all of us, Milty. Because, and I know, I know what it is. I had a tropism to power. When you grow mm. up and you want to be with the people who are the winners, right? Because that's our culture. Oh, and well, so you know, I had, yeah, that's, that's what we see, no question. Unless you're in a place like fam. In fact, I would recommend as a brother named, I don't know if you've seen Derek White's book. Your pops is probably in the book. Derek White is a good brother, Derek E. White. He published mm -hmm. a book on HBCU football, but he centered it in FAM. Because, mm -hmm. of course, FAM, Jackson State, where uh, Big John Merritt was before he went to Tennessee A&I, the great Eddie Robinson. And this is the golden age. You talk, it, it, Deion yeah. Sanders is trying to return to something. You, you ain't starting nothing, bro. But, <laughs> yeah, and, and it's and it's funny you say that, but it's like, it's, it's like when you're a kid and you grow up in the lap of luxury, to you, that's just your house. No question, which is why you yeah. are the person you are. You know, that's just your house. <laughs> you don't know. I didn't know the significance of it all. Uh, listening to you, you know, listening to you discuss uh, Gates's uh, documentary about the yeah. black church. If I'd had an inkling of what I do now, I would have paid more attention. Mm. Mm. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a Christian. I had my arguments with that. Uh, I've since yeah. taken refuge in Tibetan Buddhism and I'm very happy. Oh, it works for me. Yeah, no question. Sure. But it would have been nice. It would have been, it would be nice to know more so that I don't have the coded reactions that I do to it. And I know they're wrong, but they're so ingrained. They're hard mm -hmm. to shake off. No, they're, they're almost impossible to really, because it's part of our lived experience. Yeah. And, uh, but any, uh, you know, and I, it's really bad because my undergraduate degree is in classical languages. Really? What did you study? Yeah. Latin, Greek? Latin and Greek. Okay. I studied, uh, I went to Catholic school. So I had a priest who, uh, who had been a secretary in the Vatican when he was young. So I had four Ooh. years of Latin and the best Latin teacher in the state. My okay. high school won the Latin competitions so many years running. Uh, my senior year in high school, uh, a local professor invited me to sit in on her Greek class mm. because she liked my poetry. Yes. And so uh, when I went to university in Nashville, please don't make me tell you the name because I hated the All school. Right. Well, that's okay. I mean, it could be, but be the Belmont, Vanderbilt, Tennessee State Fisk. <laughs> Or or Trevecca, I guess. No, no, let me say uh, you know, it, it was not Belmont, it was not Fisk, and it wasn't Tennessee State. Okay, okay. So then I could take another get you knew the black people on campus. So was Ray Wimbush there when you were there? They had uh, the, the Joseph Johnson uh Black Culture Center. They I, I remember the Black Culture Center. I didn't spend a lot of time, I was mostly in a funk. Uh um, no, you, you're a classics major, so you had you had some translations to master. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I, and, and, you know, and I just, you know, I really wasted my time. Uh, I didn't, I didn't effectively waste my time there. Let me put it that way. I was going to say. Uh, because I could have, 
I should have gone into the Near Eastern languages. We had a, a guy, uh, I don't remember his first name, uh, but his last name was Race. And he was like one of the foremost scholars of Near Eastern languages. Wow. And a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took him for juvenile and he was a really good scholar. But I, if I'd known now, I would have gone more into Egyptology. Well, you and, know, the, gift, uh, the gift that you have now, and I, I mean, we'll, we'll keep talking. I just want to make this point as you're, as you're talking and making me think about it. Uh, we have very few people, like we teach Egyptian language. I don't, Dr. Mario Baby teaches at Howard, student of Theophilo Benga, very important and, and very, I mean, he's one of the finest students of Egyptian hieroglyphs and teachers in the world, black dude. Oh yeah, you got Obenga. There you go. See, this? okay. Now this is this is where I'm going with this. We have so few people, and and like Obenga, oh, I would love for the two of you all to talk. Oh yeah, oh you got his stuff in French, Egyptian geometry. I remember when that came out. In fact, I bought it at Praise on Africain in Paris. We were there with Obenga. Larmatan is on one side of the street, Praise on Africain on the other side. This is perfect. We have very few people who like Obenga, can do the glyphs, do the Greek, do the Latin. As you begin, and clearly you've already started. Have you started studying the language yet? Because we need people who can build bridges. I I am trying my best, but James, you yes, you're a language person. I I will buy a book in a minute. Milton. Oh yeah, that's the new edition by yeah Black Athena. No question, they did the three volume. Rutgers University Press had a sale. But James Allen, that's the that's the that's the one though on the language itself, right? Not the uh, not the grammar book. You could. You could break all kind. Oh, there it is. You about to pull it out? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is a guy that I cannot find other than this book. Oh. And... You know what? Leave your Omodupe or do your yay. Look, if you will. That's the your... guy I want. <laughs> you, you know what? Let me um make sure, and Karen's gonna make sure too. Drop your uh email in the chat here, so. Uh, I'm gonna connect you with Mario because you are in the language army. We have very few generals in the language army. Seriously, we need you, sis. We and, and, and you, I know you know like Frank Snowden's work, and what we haven't had are some hard hitting black scholars to get in them Greek and Latin sources and really yeah. begin. Yeah, but I, I see. Am I am I getting clocked uh, before? But I I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask you what are the, some of the areas that I could ask my mom? For oh yes, yeah. yeah. Because I wanted uh, primarily I wanted for a family thing, sure. uh, but also I would like it. Uh, I thought of donating it to a place for oral histories. I, I think right? I'll say this very quickly. Your mother, she's ninety now. She's 90. She turned 90 in September. Oh, that's beautiful. That is beautiful. So that means that she was born in 30, mm-hmm. which means that she was where I'm sure. And in fact, I was trying to pull it out, but it's too far for me to get. And I think you probably heard us mention this one before. Uh, there is a history, the National Education Association, when the Black Teachers Union merged mm-hmm. and like your father and so many. In the fact, there's a book called The Price They Paid, which talks about the price that these segregated institutions, black folk paid when they didn't get the jobs, they didn't get, you know, the principals were demoted, the best teachers were cherry picked and they screwed a lot of the black people. Um, but the NEA, the ATA, the American Teachers Association, which was the black association made a deal with the NEA. They said, we're gonna merge with y'all, but we need to write our histories so that we don't lose our history. The Mississippi volume, and you, oh my God, y'all don't know, you were probably little, little when this lady was around. Because she was on the faculty of Jackson State 
for decades, and her husband was a professor at Tougaloo, math professor. This lady's name, Dr. Cleopatra Davenport Thompson. Cleo D. Thompson from Egypt, Mississippi, <laughs> wrote the history for Mississippi, the history of the Mississippi Teachers Association. I know both your parents were members of the Mississippi Teachers Association. And I would begin, of course, just in terms of what the eth ethnographers might call grand tour questions. You know, one of those, tell me everything you can remember. I would ask her about the Mississippi Teachers Association. Ask her if she knew Dr. Thompson. You might have met Dr. Thompson because she was on the faculty at Jackson State. So, and I suspect once she gets going, that conversation will then begin to unfold because they were the backbone of so much. And in fact, I'll end with this. And I'm interested to hear what you, what you had to say about this. Um, so much of the work that gets put in the documentaries in terms of civil rights work and things like that, it was really the teachers. I don't know if she's if she or your father have ever shared any stories, but it's really the teachers. When you talk about Greenwood, that's a snick <laughs> hangout. So have you have y'all have you ever asked her about student nonviolent coordinating committee? Does she know any of those students or she uh she didn't she didn't know anyone. Uh they were they were uh not active in that way. Uh my mother told me once that she she took I, I think my brother in his stroller on a march and my dad was like you keep the baby at home. <laughs> the baby at home. Um uh we were uh but they knew so many people. My dad knew everybody at this Jackson is what State. I'm gonna say I'm about to say if he know your father I mean I I, 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 I I tried to get him to write his story um that's you know, okay. But but before, but he was, uh, he had a slow decline with dementia. You know what? That's all right. He's an ancestor now, and your mama has a lot of it. That's so true. Yes. can come out of her story. I really think, where did your mom go to undergrad? I know we got to go. <laughs> My mother went to Jackson State. Oh, no. She you got to ask her about Marvel. And her graduate degree at Jackson State. Oh, and, 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 what, what, was her, what was her field? Uh, she was a primary school teacher. So she generally taught students. Uh, who did not go through kindergarten or Head Start. She taught first grade. So she got all of the problem kids. And uh, she was very good with them. She was oh, always, uh, all of her old students always used to come up and, you know, make sure their younger siblings got in her class. And the only reason she stopped was because she could not take the parents. How about she said that? The parents, the parents were just awful. Yeah. Let me say this very quick. I know we got to go. Professor Hunter, I'm mentioning this to you as well. What are we talking Number one, I would just keep the tape recorder rolling every time she opened her mouth. That's number one. Number two, if you're thinking about some place, some place to do with it, I think the Margaret Walker Center mm -hmm. at Jackson State is very important for that because she was on that faculty. I'm sure your mother knew her. Mm -hmm. And now that you're talking, this is where I'll end. Professor Hunter, remember back in the summer, we were talking about Cleopatra Davenport Thompson. She was the dean of the School of Education at Jackson State. Your mama probably had her as a teacher. Do you understand? So, I mean, oh, my goodness. As you get in the story. You got two books to write. You got your pop's book, you got your mom's book, and you got all this research to do. And we're going to be, well, when you're in between, you helping us translate and make these connections. <laughs> Thank you. I would, be, I would be very happy to do so. One of my dreams was to be the new Michael Ventress. And uh, I would love to try to get into the Meroitic uh, thing. Oh, I got the people. I know some people, hardcore people who are working in Nubia, who are doing that work now. Oh, a couple of people very much. A couple of sisters. A couple yeah. of when I went to undergrad with Deb Hurd, who was there. Um, Nubia Warfork. 
who is doing uh, done some digs. Oh yeah, y'all need to. Oh, you know what? That's done. We got okay. I, yeah. I left my email in the in the chat there. Thank and you so again, much, Dr. Hunter, for the you opportunity. Go, before you go, tell everyone how they can reach you on Twitter because so many people say that they know you, your father, your mother. They they want to get uh, connect with you on Twitter. Can they connect with you? <laughs> yeah, I try. I was trying to keep. Uh, uh, yes, they can. Uh, I, I'm DS Milty on Twitter. That's the that's the public Twitter that I have. D is a, as in David, S is in Sam, Milty. Yes. I L T I. Okay. And yes. you know, thank you, thank you so much because this this history has to be filled in by us. Yes. You know, this exercise is not just about us reclaiming who we are as Africans, but there are blanks that need to be filled in that only our family can tell uh, us and. Every time, Dr. Carr, you drop something, you remind us of something in our own family, which should lead to these conversations before these elders make transition. And your mom can fill in many of the blanks, for sure. And, and, see, that's, and see, that was one of my blocks earlier, is that I don't have to go to Africa because I embraced my ancestors here. That's right. And that's what I really, that's one of the things that always used to make me so mad, is that We've done so much in this country yeah. and I'm not going to jump over an ocean to embrace people who are going to, first thing they're going to ask me is, where's my son? Where's my daughter? <laughs> well, well, the, the, that now it's interesting because it's, it's not either or it's both. And like a brother who is actually from Texas, but he moved there with his mother, Dr. Williams, who was Kojic, if you can believe this, Dr. Williams. Her son, Asa Hilliard III, was raised in the Denver Public Schools, one of the great, and the brother I was talking about earlier, he's from Denver. His mother is like a major fig figure in the Pentecostal church, Dr. Williams. And at the same time, Asa, whenever he would be in Egypt or Ghana or South Africa, anywhere, he would be like, we're Africans wherever we go, so you don't have to pick. That's the that's the thing that we've been taught. We have to pick. And I'm telling you, every time I've been to the continent and spent time, whether it be North Africa, West Africa, South Africa, there are always people who are going to say, you know, you from America. And there are always going to be people who are going to say, yeah, you from America, but we cousins. Think of it as cousins. Don't think of it as you got to go there. You got Yeah, it's, it's both and. Trust me. Yeah. And all is correct. I, and I think, you know, this is not a versus. No, nope. we're not doing verses here. Nope. Do what makes you feel good. The point is, do what makes you feel good within the framework of understanding who you are. That's right. Not That's out right. of ignorance. And our job is to make sure that you have all of the tools to go and find out all the things you need to know about yourself, because this is a self project. Exactly. All of us coming back. Okay, let's bring uh, Mr. Amos in. He's coming in from your favorite city, Philly. Oh, what's up? Amos. <laughs> Oh, hey, what's going on, Dr. Gunn? I'm good, man. It's good to see you, bro. What's going on? What's hey, man, what y'all doing up here, man? Look, hold on, hold good, on, hold on. Do you know him? Yeah. yeah. No <laughs> question. <laughs> so I was, I was one of his, I was one of his uh, freedom school kids. Yeah. I mean, he, he he raised my brother pretty much at Howard. Yeah. No, no, no. We look, we family. Uh, we we yeah. family here. Hey, what's up, man? <laughs> what's happening? Yeah. I can't complain. Can't complain. I'm up here just trying to said, I won't complain. And enjoy you, life, right? You talking about your city, man. Talking yeah, about them Dixie Hummingbirds. Look, the funeral was at the Met. Look, I'm sitting there and tricked the Met out all up now, man. I'm like, what the hell? Now, can, are we even allowed in North Philly anymore, man? So they didn't move black people out. 
it's it's switching around, but you know, for the black people that are trying to hold on, they definitely trying to hold on. So no it is what it is. Um, you, I, you just moved up, back, I just moved back from Maryland, like yeah, yeah, a little bit over a year ago. So, um, Damn, but yeah, right, I, I'm not older, huh? Right when the Rona hit. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not going. Um, I'm not going to spend up too much time. No, but good. it's good to see yeah, you. Yeah, but my um my question is, I'm, I was thinking about my 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 uncle just recently passed, who was my brother's godfather, my uncle Earl. Yeah. And um, he, him, and my dad were best friends, and they went to, uh, of course, the legendary Grants in, in Philadelphia. Grants, baby. Gra- yes, graduated in 1973. Oh. Um, and um, during that period of time. I actually got the uh, when he passed away just recently. I thought about and it got me in the, so emotional. I, I got to thinking about just that period of time that they were in high school. Because my dad had a lot to say about the period of time that they were in during those seventies. Right, gang wars, man. Shaka Patah's mama. They was putting. They was trying to squash the beefs in Philly, man. Right. So. I, um, so basically, pretty much, I started having a conversation with my dad, and my dad started talking about uh, what it was like to deal with the period after that late '80s, when you're talking about Malcolm and all of those, all of those people being killed. Yes, um, and it got to me thinking because I'm, even though I'm not a historian, I'm not a book guy like my brother is, because he doesn't got it from you. His Look, show. Man. It's out of control. No, nah, Mike, Mike, that's the man. That's the book man. <laughs> but it got it got me thinking about this question. I just and especially especially because you know Mike is big on Stevie Wonder. He'll talk about Stevie. No, Mike is a Stevie Wonder expert. He the one really need to be t- Michael Leak is the man on Stevie Wonder. So like, <laughs> I need to check with Mike, man. <laughs> so it got me to thinking. Um, I wanted to hear what you felt about the context when it comes to the relationship of that ending period that post period of what took place in the mid to the late late 60s going into the 70s and how it connected to like the rehealing process dealing with guys like Gil Scott Heron and Stevie Ooh. Wonder because I listened to my dad and them and like I remember my uncle Earl and my dad like crying about that type of stuff because they said it was a deep period and that healing process and trying to get over it was just too much so I just wanted it See if you had any thoughts about it or any kind of context on how that connected the dots on how that music was created, especially because you're talking about Stevie Wonder right now. Yeah, brother. Let me say this right quick. Love to Mike, your niece, man, sister-in-law, moms, and everybody, man. Please, please give, give my love to them, man. Absolutely. You know, I'm a member of the family, man. You know, I love, <laughs> I love y'all. Absolutely. Um, you know, and, and as you say, your brother would be the one. Obviously, y'all chopping it up on this would be something. I'll be sitting there with my tape recorder because Mike is he man he knows this stuff cold along with nate and them guys thompson all them guys man mm-hmm. philly cats know y'all history by the way everybody listening this is the model man these cats when you if, if you can't come if you can't talk about the history of your town through the family members the way we hear amos talking about it that's mm-hmm. the model right there you listen right, to right. The so in terms of that period i would say this in terms of that category we did for the, for, for the schools movement and memory um how did or do black people remember this moment one thing I learned in living in Philly for almost 20 years, this is my adopted hometown. Y'all adopted me and I'm forever grateful to that, for that. One thing I learned about it up close and the same is true for Detroit, New York, the same is true for Chicago, Curtis Mayfield and them, you know, in the seventies and eighties, that culture, Philadelphia international, you know, you hear ship ahoy to OJs, 
when you hear, I mean, when you hear that music, I think we look back on that time as a moment when the music is reflecting the kind of cultural and political and social, not turmoil. I think that's what white facing kind of descriptions do. Turmoil and conflict, yeah, but community experiencing difficulties and then managing to survive and thrive in spite of those obstacles. And it's really in the music. I think, you know, the sound of Philadelphia in particular, man, when you you hear, you know, something like Wake Up Everybody, Harold Melville in the Blue Notes, man, when you, when you, again, I think about the OJs, when I think about all the music that is coming out of that period, and then the period of the 80s and then 90s that comes after that, you know, unless I, my memory is, is is failing, I think Evelyn Champagne King comes out. I mean, this is the period. Now, I'm in the South. We're growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, but we're hearing the, the, the popular music. But the popular music, particularly music coming out of Philadelphia, is reflecting the kind of joy in spite of hard circumstances and political consciousness. So the songwriters, Tom Bell, you know, I'm just thinking about all that. So anyway, I would say this very quickly in the end. I think your generation, those now in their 30s and 40s, just like when a second ago when we were listening and, and, and you know, um, uh, Milty was, was talking, we have to now capture our elders' memories. We have to capture our elders' memories. I mean, you know, Malcolm was assassinated. Uh, anniversary is coming up tomorrow. When you read Les Payne's new book on Malcolm or anything about Malcolm, it, it, it captures some of this. But if you're from Philly and you were raised in Philly and your people were raised in Philly and their people were raised in Philly, then you know how much Moss number 12, number 12 meant Brother Rodney Muhammad and him there and now, I think, if Rodney is still the minister. Malcolm used Philly in some very important ways. Jeremiah Shabazz was the head of that mosque. And of course, all that story is intertwined with Black Brothers Incorporated, which is the, the so-called Black Mafia. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, but you know Amos have coming up because it is a junior Black Mafia that comes up after that. But all that stuff is interlooped together. If y'all want to read uh, Sean Patrick Cooper's book, Black Brothers Incorporated, or more importantly, uh, Dana and John King, Dana King used to work, work for the school district, John King, they were in witness protection in part because their father got caught up in that. He did his own song for my father, John Griffin, did a, a memoir of that period. Philadelphia in the 70s and 80s is indicative of that black struggle during that period to maintain the momentum of black power, of social and cultural movement in the face of deindustrialization, in the, in the face of these uh, black political power coming into place as white folk began to leave those urban cities. You know, we'll see, obviously, by the end of the 80s, we'll have seen the coming and going of Wilson Good who actually wrote a memoir, which is one thing you should have on the shelf right next to the thing on the bombing of Osage Avenue. Very important. Um, but all that stuff in like Philly deeply interwoven with culture. And it isn't just to, to Mitzi's point. It isn't just the culture of Philadelphia. It is the culture of African people in Philadelphia. And they are making deliberate choices to link to larger echoes of African culture. I think about, uh, in fact, you know, this sister, she's one of our freedom school elders, really. Uh, um, my, um, 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 uh, Maisha, Maisha Ngoza, my, my, Maisha Sullivan Ngoza, very important. The Kwanzaa Collective. Kwanzaa goes back in Philly almost as far back as Kwanzaa goes, period. Um, uh, Kawaita organization. All that's so the head of Black Power Conference in Philly, of course, 67, 68. So it's very important. I mean, all those institutions. So I would say start, you start with the fam and get it all written down. But listen to Mike Leak without fail, brother. <laughs> so I know we're getting ready to wrap up. Uh, I want to Pull something right quick while you pulling the next person up. Thank you, Amos. 
Oh, she is. Okay, Evelyn Champagne King. Much love. I th- thank love you again. You. I really appreciate it. I love you, man. I and, you know, and, you know, and you know, me and Mike still, me and Mike actually fight about which is better, finding a uh, fulfilling fight first finale, or I'm inner visions. I'm inner visions. All oh, day. yeah. I just say, look, man. <laughs> Look, whatever y'all say, because I ain't never getting in a fight with your brother about Stevie Wonder. I'm just listening, brother. Much love, Karen. Yo, much love. Much, much love. love, Karen. Oh, you muted. You muted, sis. Nice to meet you, Amos. Thank you. Absolutely. Much man, love. And love you, man. All right. All right. I'm going to grab this. Go and ahead. while we wait, you know, they, uh, I think Ben Crump had a press conference while we were on the air. That uh, was the Malcolm thing, huh? Yeah. What did he say? I don't know. Well, I was on the air with you. <laughs> so, no idea. Uh, all right, y'all drop in the comments what happened at the press conference because I know y'all are multitasking and doing many things, watching. So, so, so I was, I mean, that, that is true. Evelyn Champagne King is from, is yes. from Philly, huh? Because you know, it's a shame. Oh! <laughs> all right. If I lose your love, it's a shame. Right. <laughs> Dude, man. <laughs> I mean, oh, man. Uh, yeah thank you so much for the question thank you professor hunter and professor carr uh it's been a, a wild week um you know unfortunately my family and i were spared from some of the worst parts of it so oh we're, we're okay okay good Good. So thank how, you, thank you, for though? You know, is it? Is it? I mean, it's supposed to be fifty something degrees there today, right? It's yeah, up. yeah. So it's certainly warming up. I think I think that we're supposed to have a high in the high fifties or sixties over the next couple of days. Thank so God. it's all starting to melt, and the streets are okay. And I believe the power for a lot of people um, has come back on, but not for everyone. Mm-hmm. Obviously, not for enough. And then people whose pipes have burst and folks who are still suffering, a lot of people lost their lives. A lot of people have lost their homes as a result of, of I think, malfeasance, not just one mm-hmm. global weirding and, and not just the, you know, the climate, but malfeasance. Certainly. Political malfeasance has been some really- Certainly. Con- Certainly with the governor and the senators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's ironic that people who don't even live in a state were fighting to, to make sure that folk, you know, uh, could get their power back on while right. others flew to uh, Cancun. Oh, right. All right. Yeah. How about that? How about that? <laughs> what you got? What you got, yeah, bro? What's going on? Yeah, certainly. Uh, Professor Hunter, Professor Carr, I want to thank you again for this fantastic space you've created. Um, Professor Carr, I've been following you since 2014 as oh. a consequence of the you know killings of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown. Oh yeah, brother. Uh, we, lived, was, we lived through that damn man, man. And y'all had your brother there. Was Xavier? Uh, what's his Johnson? The cat they blew up. It the, oh, police, the little robot yeah, in and blew yeah, up. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we have blue, uh, a thin blue line poster still, still up in neighborhoods from that. What? I mean, you know. You of know, course. Yeah, certainly. And both, and both of them, John is uh Dallas. Both of huh? them, John. That that was a couple of years ago, and you know Amber Geiger, the police officer. Oh yeah. So trying to make sure you know that people are held accountable i guess but no questions no questions. uh i know that we don't have a lot of time so i'll be brief no that's okay uh, were you from dallas or i gotta ask from dallas born and raised okay south dallas i used to go to uh the um they had they had a what was it called uh third eye the bookstore uh so pan-african bookstore in dallas certainly is oh, that may be the resource. Third, third, third. I may have been the study group because Ashrock Crazy and them used to be down there. In fact, it was a sister. I think the sister, sister, 
Equity. Yeah, that's yeah. It. She used to send uh, her students from Howard, one of my best students I'll ever have, Ava Wilson, uh, from from South Dallas, man. And then, of course, y'all had the Black Academy of Arts and Letters in Dallas, man. So I mean, it, yeah. So, anyway, but anyway, I'm sorry, bro. Yes, well, no, okay, you were no, you were Dallas, born and raised, okay. For sure, born and raised, and so it's been a live education I've been doing. Uh, certainly, uh, a few minutes ago, you said the sacred secrets will be will unfold. Oh, precious man. And uh, a few Saturdays ago, you had a question. Someone asked a question about voodoo and the heirlooms that have been lost mm -hmm. uh, throughout history. Mm -hmm. And so originally, that's the question that I wanted to kind of ask you uh, about to see if there was a text or some book that I could find oh, or, yeah. or anything. But but then I, I came to my parents' house and I have a, a book of genealogy. That's your family history. And so I thought, and so when I when I kind of realized that a question was being sent to me from the ancestors, it kind of made on, me brother. emotional almost. Come so on. I'm going to share some with you. I got a slave manifest Whoa. from the Port of New Orleans. Stop it. From 1821. Come, hey man, so are your folks Haitian? Well, so I was going to ask you, where do I go from here? Got you. Because it's lost now. So I have a no, manifest. Look at that. Like the That's first manifest. page, I got Rachel, who was born in about 1787. She was on the ship that came in New Orleans? She, yes, from Baltimore. We got the name of the ship. It's the Lapwing. It was a taxi from Baltimore to in New Orleans. What was the year of the, 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 uh, the, uh, the trip? To, uh, so the, yeah, yeah. Let me... Because uh, she was yeah, born so, in 87. So the, the ship landed in New Orleans in 1821. Okay. That is, that's not unusual because what happens is, you know, they supposed to have outlawed enslavement in the Constitution in 1808 in terms of importing. That's when the domestic trade explodes. Mm. Baltimore is a dangerous ass city. <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I'm so it could be because they was kidnapping people, but they ship you out of Baltimore and you end up in the deep south. Right, but it but it really explodes after in in the eighteen teens. So that mm -hmm. this won't be hard to match at all with some stuff, man. But, but yeah. after, after New Orleans, what happens? Uh, so um, Rachel had two children on the on the ship who what um, brought who she brought with her, I guess, to New Orleans. I don't know if that's maybe like children. In this do you? Oh, I see there at the bottom. Yeah, highlighted. We have Rachel. She's 37. And then John Washington is six. And it and says scene is is uh three. So scene might have been so we don't know where she was captured. Correct. They, they may have had her captured. If she's coming out of Baltimore, it could be the eastern shore. She maybe I do where Harry Tubman and Fred Douglas are. But those yeah. records are fairly uh they're fairly detailed. This won't be mm -hmm. hard. If you leave your information in the chat, when we, when okay. we we're going to, we're going to connect. The other thing is awesome. another of my best students. She's a professor now at the university of Chicago. She was at Dartmouth for a number of years. Rashana Johnson. Uh, she wrote a book called slavery's metropolis. You send, you put your email. I'm going to mm, send it. Okay. Rashana is from new Orleans. She came to Howard as a freshman. She wanted to write about enslavement. She wanted about the history of her people. And she is one of the finest young historians on the subject of slavery in New Orleans there is. And so I'm going to connect you all because if she doesn't know off the top of her head, I am guarantee you she will know as quickly or more than anybody in the country where to go look.
for these records. Well, great. Well, your ancestors, man. Well, thank you so much. It's a fantastic uh, honor to speak to you both. Thank uh, you for all you do and stay safe and healthy. Uh, it's us, man. Stay warm, brother. Stay safe. For sure. And and thank you for bringing that. I mean, it's uh, ooh, that is humbling to be able to look and see your ancestor as far back as the 1700s. You know that's that. Yeah, we're fortunate. Um, but certainly want to do a lot more research. But yeah, thank you but so you much, man. She was born the same year they they found they started the Constitution. Which means wow. her parents are older than America, so they need to stop making documentaries wow. like it all started with uh <laughs> this is beautiful, bro. Right thank, you. thank you, Vernon. Nice to meet you. Thank Stay you. likewise. Well, make sure you put your, your uh, email in the chat. Yeah, bro. don't leave until you do that. And everyone put the thumbs up. You know, let's break the algorithms here in this space we don't own, uh, which we appreciate. We're grateful because it makes us all connected. But you know, as we Imagine what the world is supposed to look like, where we build our spaces, where we are uh, funding our goals and, and, and having spaces for those, you know, um, narratives to sit. Yes. Yes. This week we'll be ready to really unpack that. Oh, good. This is the genesis. You know, we first have to have the gathering spaces. We first have to have the places where we can come together. And there are a billion plus people on YouTube. There should be more subscribers to this channel. Please, y'all. Yeah, get people. Well, we got to get that going, please. Yeah, yeah, more thumbs up on the thing. Like, let's, let's show the world that we care about the things that really do matter. So I appreciate everyone that's here. But yes. spread the word, you know. And when we do this next thing, I'm going to ask everybody to participate in a way that you know, I've never asked anyone to participate before because if we build this thing through our lens, with our hands, with our minds, it can't be taken away. And this knowledge that right. Dr. Carr drops every week, uh, it can't be taken away from us. And as a matter of fact, it's a building block when we talk about the pyramids. Yes. You, you, sir, you drop enough of the cornerstones for us to build pyramids that will last a lifetime. So I just oh, want to no. say thank you again. No, thank you, sis, because you built you building this has created a situation where we can even I can't thank you enough. The, the way I look at the world now is very different than the way I looked at it even three months ago, six months ago, a year ago for sure. So, I mean, my goodness. My goodness, but you know, and, and, and as folks are getting to learn, see, now I gotta go, I gotta go do another thing in a minute. But I'm thinking that I gotta get, I gotta get Evelyn King out of my mind. Well, you know what? It's all right, let that song be an earworm today. Oh, you got me so confused, it's a shame. Burn <laughs> in, come on, come on now. Yeah. Let's go, let's go, let's not get started. Hey, I love you, I love everybody I in love here. You Thank y'all. Thumbs up, like, share. Please. See y'all next week. Thank all right, you. See y'all next week. Oh my.